When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Day 7 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We will bring you all of the latest. We'll bring you news. We'll bring you analysis. We'll give you an opportunity to comment on it. I'll give you my two cents on everything that we're seeing because it certainly is a precarious situation out there. Meantime, one bit of news that came out a day or so ago, which I found so incredibly disturbing it's not nearly as significant or as serious or as uh, life-changing as what's happening in Eastern Europe be- because no one's life or death is going to be affected by this. It has to do with a game, a game that is played by children, a game that is played by 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, baseball. Major League Baseball is scheduled to begin it was scheduled to begin its and its regular season on March 31st. Well, the players union and the owners have failed to reach an agreement on a new labor contract ahead of a management imposed deadline. So now this baseball lockout is continuing. Baseball's opening day has been canceled. The first two series of the 2022 season, which was set to begin on March 31st, have been canceled after the players rejected the owner's best offer. Now, uh, I have I find this so incredibly objectionable, so incredibly outrageous. Um, you got to understand. Look, I'm a fan of baseball, always have been. I'm a Met fan, but I just love the game itself. I'm so excited about the Ferry Hawk season that uh, our owner, John Katsimatidis, this new independent league team that's launching. And I'm looking forward. I love any kind of baseball, minor league, independent league, major league. I love to play it. I love to watch it. I'm looking forward to the day when my son is old enough that I can teach him a little bit about baseball. To me, uh, baseball, is, there are so many lessons that you can learn uh, about life from baseball, and to me, baseball is such a potent training ground for life lessons. I, I think it teaches so much about leadership. I think it teaches so much about um, teamwork. I think it teaches so much about strategy. I think it teaches a lot about athleticism. I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful sport. I mean, to me, it is the greatest team sport that God ever created, and it's just fun to watch. Now, the Major League Baseball owners had indicated that if a deal wasn't in place by the end of February, 
it would begin taking down games with no intention to reschedule them. So progress on the uh, has stalled on the economic issues here that at the core are at the core of the dispute. It's prompted the parties to break off talks with no plans to resume, at least not immediately. After convening for nine consecutive days, the sides are now retrenching to their corner of the world to figure out the next steps. This is a real shame. This is horrible. Now, I'll just yeah, I, I've looked at what what they're fighting over, and I think it under I, I understand it. It mostly has to do with money. It has to do with uh, with taxes, uh, the, the competitive balance tax, which they say is a de facto uh, salary cap. It also has to deal with compensation for younger players. I can see both sides of di- of different issues. I can see the players also want $85 million put into a performance-based bonus pool for players who don't qualify for arbitration. Okay, whatever. I, I, I look at what the players want. I look at what the owners want. I see both sides. I'm not necessarily that interested in getting into the substance of what's wrong here and what each side wants because it's a little tricky to explain. It's a little um, It's a little difficult to get into. However... I will say this, the baseball fans, Major League Baseball fans have been beaten, disrespected, and repeatedly not shown the kind of respect that fans of a game like this should be entitled to. What they have been through over the the last Major League Baseball strike was in 1994. This is a lockout, and I guess the real difference is just who is making the decision not to play. In the case of 1994, it was the players. In the case of 2022, it's the owners. That's the difference, really, I guess, between a a strike and a lockout. So for the first time, this is pretty groundbreaking. For the first time in 28 years, regular season games are being canceled because of a labor dispute. If you look at what fans have had to endure... In that time, they had to endure a strike and seeing a baseball season canceled. Now, that was an exciting year. We were heading towards a very exciting Yankees versus Expos World Series. Tony Gwynn was hitting 394 that year. He was flirting with 400. We could have had the first player to hit 400 since since Ted Williams. And there was a lot of other exciting things that were happening. And... The fans had to sit back and deal with a strike because of greed. Greed on the part of the owners, greed on the part of the players. Well, the fans came back. After all that, the fans came back. And what did the owners do? What did the people that own these teams do? They raised ticket prices. You used to be able to get to the the best seat in a baseball stadium not long ago. Not long ago. You used to be able to go to the best seat in a baseball stadium for $17, $18. Now you can't park at a stadium for $17 or $18. You have seen a dramatic rise in ticket prices. You have seen pandemic cheating on the part of the players with steroids and performance-enhancing drugs. And through it all, the fans come back. The fans keep coming back as they're disrespected by the owners, as they're disrespected by the players, and they show the loyalty that only baseball fans can show. They're, the fans are not treated 
as the engine that is keeping this sport alive. The fans have been treated as simply numbers to be taken advantage of, to be exploited, to see how much they'll pay. In addition to raising ticket prices, in addition to dealing with this cheating scandal, in addition to uh, dealing with baseball strikes, you see things like the Houston Astros engaging in a whole different form of cheating, um, actual actual institutionalized cheating on the part of the ball club. You see not only that, you see um, stadiums getting smaller and smaller. So not only can you not afford if you're a lower lower class or low mid middle class family to take a family of four to a baseball game, good luck even getting in. Because if you can't get into that luxury box, there's fewer and fewer seats for regular fans. And through it all, the fans keep watching. Now the they're paying a price for this. The audience is getting older and older and older. Major League Baseball has an older average fan base than any other major sport, and. They keep going. The owners and the players keep going and pushing the fans' patience. Well, this is outrageous. This is a tremendous failure of leadership, not only by the baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred, who I think has done an awful job. Do you remember what an incompetent baseball commissioner Bud Selig was? He certainly was. Rob Manfred makes uh, Bud Selig look like, uh, you know, I I don't know, uh, look like Henry Ford in terms of his ability to run something. This was what we're seeing from Rob Manford is a complete abdication of responsibility in the office of the commissioner. But I'm not just blaming Rob Manford. I'm blaming the players. I'm blaming the owners. How these players, excuse me, these owners are making $10 billion a year. The players are making millions of dollars a year. So we see billionaires feuding with millionaires. And as what always happens when elephants fight, it's the ants that get trampled. Well, I'm sick of this. I am sick of this. And I really wish that they would, the the players union head, Tony Clark, and whoever's representing the owners in this negotiation and Rob Manford would say, we're playing opening day. We will start the season on opening day, and we're not leaving this room until we come up with an agreement. Is it going to cost the owners a little bit more? Maybe. Is it going to cost the players a little something? Maybe. They need to, just like Cortez, when he came to America, you know what the first thing he did is? He burned his ships. Because he knew he had no choice but to conquer the new world. I'm not seeing that level of commitment from the people involved in this baseball dispute. And we get to suffer. And that's a real shame. Even if you don't care about baseball, even if you don't watch baseball, listen to the games on the radio, um, think of the, the fact that the next generation of youth athletes is not going to be able to see their favorite players play. Think of what a shame that is. Think about the broader economic implications of this. Uh, As President Biden, as any president does, has the power to end any labor dispute that is threatening the economy. This is threatening the economy. 
And the president, if the players and the owners won't show leadership and the commissioner won't show real leadership, President Biden, in my opinion, needs to step in and decree a solution. Because to think that these players who have been, excuse me, these fans of this game, a children's game, who a lot of people would play for food money, which a lot of people would play for food money, these fans who have been smacked around and spit upon are now going to be forced to deal with the cancellation of Major League Baseball games. It is a travesty. And the president ought to say so. I was sorry that the president didn't mention this in his State of the Union. But, look, I realize there's a European war going on that he's dealing with and some other things. The president ought to come out and say, look, either you come up with a solution or I come up with a solution. And I can promise you the solution I come up with is going to be a lot worse than yours. Did that ever happen? When you're fighting with a sibling, maybe, and you're fighting over, I don't know, a, a toy or something, and your father comes out and says, look, you guys work this out for yourself. Otherwise, I'm going to come up with a solution that you won't like. That's the kind of leadership that's missing on all sides, from the commissioner, the president, the players union, the owners. I'm less interested in the substance of what they're fighting about, and I'm more interested in the fact that they're allowing this to cancel the season. 800-848-9222. Harlan Ullman will join us in uh, a couple of minutes. But I think the players, the owners, the president, and the commissioner would do a lot better uh, if they were to listen to that stirring, stirring monologue from James Earl Jones in the film Field of Dreams before they made the decision to abandon negotiations and retrench back to their individual corners of the world. Evil will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game... It's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. I'm not seeing that sense of wanting to keep the fans of baseball, the flames of baseball fandom alive. 800-848-WABC. We're going to go through your calls quickly. And then Harlan Ullman, who's a real hero and a brilliant strategist. Even when I when I find myself disagreeing with Harlan Ullman, I'm, I'm left embarrassed thinking, what's wrong with me? But he's going to join me in a couple of minutes. We're going to talk about the situation with Ukraine and a, a variety of other things that are going wrong in the country today, even beyond baseball. 800-848-WABC. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Frank, I skipped my sixth grade class for opening day. I told my teacher that I had a dentist appointment. My dad told me to do that. And it was the best thing I ever did in school. My older brother and I, we went to see the Reds at Crosley Field. It was the beginning of the big red machine. So it was truly amazing. I'm one of those trampled ants. Yeah, you and me both. What year was that? Uh, It had to be... 68, 69, around there. Um, Riverfront opened in 70. And we were there, and all these guys were smoking these cheap 10-cent 
on cigars, and it was just amazing, the parade going down to the show. It went underneath I-75. It's called the Finley Market Parade. Camels in the parade, elephants in the parade. They've opened the zoo animals up to it. It was just a, a kid's wildest dream come true. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Jay. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hi, Frank. Um, you're an eternal optimist. This president, or maybe any president at the moment, you know, if we had another one, does nothing to help the average American. I mean, this president is selling, you know, he's he's not tapping into our own oil supply. He's buying from Russia. And what is Russia doing to the world and to Ukraine? So if you honestly expect him to do anything for the fans of baseball, I mean, I'm beyond even thinking that. And that's very sad, isn't it? It certainly is. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hi, Frank. I want to say something on on, on this baseball issue. My heyday in baseball, I I was I basically lived at Shea Stadium. Maybe that's an exaggeration from 1969 to 76 was when I went to the games. Pre-free agency. Now, free agency, you don't you don't probably remember. Yeah, Kurt, like Kurt Flood. And, sure, right. Yeah. Now, the thing is, that was a bad decision by the Supreme Court. What they should have done was they should have made profit sharing part of the contract. Like each player gets a certain percentage bonus along with his salary. When they made them free agents, they made them parallel to the owners. And now they got the guts, so like the balls, to challenge the owners on, 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 on things when they're making millions of dollars. These owners are businessmen. Businessmen have priority. You work, you work for the man, you, you accept the terms, okay? These plays are spoiled rotten, so I would not include the owners in your gripe, Frank. All right, well, thank you, Larry. I, I, I don't mean to cut you off there, but I am including the owners. And the players. And uh, I want to squeeze in at least one or two more calls before we get to Harlan Ullman, because a lot of people want to comment on this, believe it or not. And um, uh, what Har- Harlan Ullman's new book has to say is really interesting and his expertise on Ukraine. I'm looking forward to tapping into Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Uh, hey, Frank. Great opening. That's one for the ages. Thank you. Um, <laughs> when you when you start when you said hello. Yeah. You said um, I was thinking baseball marked the time when you said sorry going in the speech. I had to call in. That's the thing. It's it's very American. It's very uniquely American. And you know, you brought up Joe Biden. Look at look who rules over him. The squad. You think they care about baseball? Have you have you? And you love Star Trek. It's the same thing. Star Trek, Star Wars. They it's the fans of the enemy. You're going to bat for the fans. Pardon the pun, but they're the enemy. Like, have you heard about the the Civil War inside Disney about Star Wars? There's a, there's a YouTube page you should watch before you watch any new Star Trek. Um, before you watch any new Star Trek shows, it's it's Overlord DVD. It's a, it's the same thing. These things are uniquely American: Star Trek, Star Wars, baseball, and so the fans become the enemies. So that's that's basically my point. <laughs> Thank you, uh, David in Pennsylvania. Hello. Hey Frank, hey, thanks for taking my call. Hey, I just want to ask you a question. You know, regarding the last baseball strike. And that was very offensive to a lot of serious baseball fans. It took a long time. I know for yeah. base, baseball fans' uh, base to recover. Do you, do you have any comments? I, I can't. I just know it took a while that because that had a negative impact on the game, uh, the national game. And I just wanted to see what your thoughts. Oh are. well, no, I, I mentioned that, and I absolutely think that. And but for Carol Cal Ripken and the home run race of uh, between Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and Mark McGuire. 
I don't know that baseball would have recovered as quickly as it did. But you know what? The fans were there. And then it turns out that a lot of that home run race was powered by steroids. If you want to keep holding, you're welcome to. I want to talk about Ukraine with Harlan Ullman in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Life Change Tea. This is a tea specifically blended with a powerful herbal proprietary formula that can help give you more energy without caffeine. It tastes great. There's no fillers, no GMOs. It's completely organic. It's a mild cleanse and a daily detox that will cleanse you from the inside out. Their slogan is the tea that makes you go. Read the testimonials for yourself at getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. If you use the promo code FRANK when you order, you'll get to enjoy free shipping. You can go to all getthetea.com today and order all sorts of other great supplements, uh, stuff that's good for your immune system, stuff that's good for your eye health, your heart health. It's all at getthetea.com. Whatever you end up ordering, if you use my promo code FRANK, not only will the good folks over at getthetea.com know that you heard about it from our show, but you'll get to enjoy free shipping anywhere in these United States. Getthetea.com, promo code FRANK. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. You know, you watch cable news, you listen to a lot of other radio programs, and you see all of these so-called military experts analyzing this war between Russia and Ukraine. And so many of them don't seem to have very much experience in combat or fighting in actual wars. Others maybe do have experience fighting in wars, but they don't necessarily seem to have the policy expertise necessary to be breaking down foreign affairs. Well, I am really pleased to tell you that uh, one of the brightest military and foreign policy minds I've ever spoken to is kind enough to join us yet again. He's a former naval officer who commanded over one 150 combat missions in Vietnam. He's a senior advisor to the Atlantic Council, and he's author of uh, a few books, including most recently, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Destruction, excuse me, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back Harlan Ullman. Harlan, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I'm glad to be with you, Frank. So I've been reading your book. I've been enjoying it very much. I want to talk to you a bit about that in uh, in a minute. But I have to get your reaction to the Russia-Ukraine situation. When we spoke, I guess about seven years ago, you pointed out to me at the time the dangers of NATO's continuing expansion, including to Russia's borders. And you seem to think at the time that this could be provocative. Given the nature of NATO expansion, were you surprised that Putin reacted the way that he did by going into Ukraine? Yes and no. Uh, Putin, over the past 20 years, has had a number of grievances with the United States, largely because he believes that we have disrespected and demeaned him and Russia and have not given him the honor and indeed the place that uh, Russia deserves as a military superpower. And this has been accumulating in terms of his resentment. Uh, I did not think, and I argued strongly, that Putin would not be so stupid to go into Ukraine because all of his demands, that is to say a new security framework in Europe, 
preventing further NATO expansion and preventing Ukraine from ever joining NATO and becoming closer to the West are now being completely voided. And indeed, NATO will expand in the sense that Finland and Sweden could join, but NATO is going to increase its military capability on the eastern flank. And Putin is now engaged in a war that could become an Afghanistan on steroids and ultimately, if a negotiation is not found soon, could lead to Putin's dismissal as president of Russia, much as Sergei, as Nikita Khrushchev got fired two years after the Bay of Pigs in debacle in 1962. Now, people think that Putin is unstable and uh, not in control. I don't agree with that. Hmm. I think it's even worse. I think he's made a huge misjudgment. I think almost like a battered wife after 20 years shoots her husband between the eyes. Putin has become so frustrated and angered that Ukraine has become something that has uh, tilted his judgment in the wrong direction and led to this invasion. And quite frankly, so far, the Russians have been incompetent. They thought that they could unleash a, an offensive armored attack that quickly could drive to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and end the conflict shortly with doing minimum damage. They underestimated Ukrainian resistance and overestimated their military capability. And so now what they're doing is trying to mount overwhelming force to punish and terrorize Ukraine into some form of a surrender. And the problem is that while the Ukrainian military has been quite good and acquitted itself well, and even though it does outnumber the Russians, remember, there are about 250,000 Ukrainian active duty military and half a million reserves and maybe 170 or 180,000 Russians, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. And so the question is, how quickly will that continue? If the, Romania, if the Ukrainians can continue to have enough ammunition, then the Russians will have their hands full. If not, the Russians will either drive into Kiev and occupy it, probably change the government, or worse, surround it and starve it to death. And you will see from cell phones, you know, thousands of Ukrainians starving and dying and that is going to make a humanitarian catastrophe, which will be very difficult for the West and the United States to respond to, because we're unlikely to use military force. And yet the Russians will be committing all these atrocities if, indeed, if in fact, they decide to use the siege. We will see how this turns out. Uh, I think under these circumstances, no administration, Republican and Democrat, could do much better than the current administration, mm. namely because... This is 20 years of grievances that have now come to a head, and it's rather like somebody who's been smoking 50 packs of cigarettes a day and after 20 years has developed cancer and wonders why. You can't go back and repeat history, and so the current administration has to play the hand it's been dealt, which is a bad hand for it and a worse hand for Ukraine. And if this turns into an extended guerrilla war, it's going to be a terrible hand for Russia because there are going to be thousands of body bags or dead young Russians. And the situation is going to be, you know, rather catastrophic, not only for those two countries, but the effects on the world at large are going to be chilling. Economic recession, oil going higher and higher and higher. And indeed, uh, China may become engaged because if the economy gets knocked off the rails, China is going to be very unhappy 
And you will see that China has already volunteered to try to become the arbitrator to mediate some kind of negotiation. This is terribly serious. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. And quite frankly, because we are not going to use military force at this stage and begin or at least lead to World War III with nuclear weapons, uh, this is just a huge humanitarian disaster. Mm. Uh, well, it sounds like uh, not many reasons to be optimistic there. We're talking with Harlan Ullman. Uh, he's the author of a new book which has uh, dramatically expanded my understanding of what the major dangers we're facing I- now. It's called The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad. Um, in terms of Russia and Ukraine, apparently the International Criminal Court at The Hague has already begun investigating whether war crimes have been committed in Ukraine. Uh, that's uh, that's the word from the chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. As somebody that's seen war up close and personal, from what you're seeing and what you're hearing out of Eastern Europe, do you think Russia has indeed committed war crimes? Sure. But war includes war crimes. Uh, Russia is already using weapons that have been prohibited um, in terms of cluster bombs and, and, and other weapons. But this is war. And... <laughs> Without making any kind of an equivalence, the United States clearly has also been guilty in Vietnam, the war I fought. Uh, we had something called the Phoenix Program, which was an assassination program headed by the CIA that killed some 50,000 Vietnamese who were suspected of being Viet Cong or North Vietnamese sympathizers. So war is filled with these sorts of things. In this particular case, however, the Russians are, I think, using excessive amounts of force that are, in fact, war crimes. But this, of course, happened in Afghanistan, and we chose not to try or prosecute Russians, Russians for war crimes in Afghanistan, which they committed, mainly because we thought that the Mujahideen were bleeding the Russians or the Soviets, and that was to our interest. Now, what's interesting here, and we'll get to my book shortly, Frank, but what Putin is using is a strategy of massive disruption, trying to disrupt the world order, trying to disrupt and divide NATO. And I think in this particular case that uh, his his strategy is not working and has had the opposite effect. And as long as that holds, ultimately Putin will not succeed. However, how long that will take uh, is, of course, the issue. And the longer it takes, the more people are going to be killed Mm -hmm. or wounded. Uh, On Tuesday, we saw several hundred Stinger aircraft missiles delivered to Ukraine's military. Some of the people that we've been speaking to in the run up to this conflict and even in the midst of it, they have cautioned that perhaps the United States should not be so quick to give military aid to Ukraine. The uh, thinking being that this won't make the difference in in a Russia-Ukraine war and will only serve to exacerbate tensions between Russia and the United States, the two greatest nuclear powers in the world. How do you see it? That's ridiculous. That argument makes no sense because the Russians are going to do what they're going to do. And quite frankly, when you think about exit strategies, Vladimir Putin may have no exit strategy except more force. And the only counter to that is for, in my mind, Zelensky to take a very Churchillian view. Uh, in, during World War II, in the early days of World War II, as the Nazis were overrunning the continent in May of 1940, Churchill made his first speech as prime minister before the House of Commons. And Churchill said, you ask what my aim is, 
My aim, I will tell you in one word, is victory. And my policy is to wage war at land, sea, and air at all costs. And I think President Zelensky has got to say our policy is victory to wage war at whatever cost as a way, perhaps, of either compelling Putin or convincing Putin that negotiations are important and that the Ukrainians will fight almost to the last man, woman, or child, meaning that the Russians are going to be in store for a very, very, very long fight. If the Ukrainians buckle and a puppet regime is installed, that means that Russia will be calling, will be controlling Ukraine, and obviously the eastern members of NATO will be extremely worried in the Balts, Romania, Bulgaria as to what happens. Uh, the point is whether we can provide the Ukrainians with enough weapons to be able to defend themselves. <clears throat> and the point is, if we don't, they're going to be killed one way or the other. And so defending themselves, it seems to me, is the only sensible response, even though I think ultimately uh, the Russians are going to prevail unless something miraculously happens. So let's talk about your book, uh, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, Massive Attacks of Disruption. You write that these massive attacks of disruption and not necessarily China or Russia are um, a potentially even greater danger to the United States than a foreign adversary. Let's start with, uh, with what massive attacks of disruption are. What do you mean when you say the new mad? Sure. Uh, during the Cold War, and many of your listeners may not have been alive during the Cold War, the old bad was mutual assured destruction. What that meant was that both the Soviet Union and the United States had sufficient nuclear and thermonuclear weapons. And a thermonuclear weapon was a thousand times more powerful than the bombs dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, could have destroyed each other after a first strike. But mad, a mutual assured destruction, prevented deterred World War, World War III. But today, massive attacks of disruption, in this particular case, COVID, has claimed the lives of about a million Americans, plus or minus. That is more Americans than were killed on every battlefield we fought since 1775. So during the Cold War, virtually no American lives were lost. And in the era of massive attacks of disruption, over a million Americans were lost. And I argue that there are seven major disruptors that indeed will threaten and, and the dangers to Americans. The first and most destructive is failed and failing government. Our government simply is not working. Government has passed and the president has signed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure improvement bill. Guess how much money has been appropriated and gone out the door? Zero. <laughs> Why? There is no federal budget. The government has been incapable of passing a budget for the last five or six years. And it operates on a continuing resolution, which is like saying to a business, you can't do any new business and you can't have any more money until I tell you to have more money and plan on that. It's impossible. Second is climate change. Look at the damage that has resorted from floods, from storms, from weather, from droughts, Afghanistan. A third of the population is starving. So climate change, whether you believe it or not, sea levels are rising, temperatures are rising, ice caps are melting. That's an issue. Cyber and social media. Literally, a kid with a, 
a 10-year-old kid who understands this stuff can probably shut down part of the electrical power grid. Social media, Frank, with deep fakes, I can <laughs> slander you in any way you can possibly imagine, to which you have no recourse, right. because once it goes on the Internet, you can't get it off. Debt. We have $30 trillion of debt. What happens when interest rates go up to 3 4 5%? The bulk of the federal budget, or a quarter of it, is going to go to pay for interest payments. What do you do then for social services, defense, and so forth? Terror. Terror is now largely domestic. It actually was 100, <clears throat> 100 years ago <clears throat> um, during the 1918 to 1920 Spanish flu, but it's entirely changed. And finally, drones. Imagine if the January 6th insurgents attacking the Capitol had drones with sticks of dynamites. They could have destroyed uh, the Capitol. <clears throat> so we have to deal <clears throat> with all of these issues as a comprehensive and coherent problem, and we're dealing with them on an individual basis, which makes it very difficult. For example, how well are we prepared for COVID-20 or COVID-21? And how well prepared are we for losing the Internet, cell phones, power grids, and so forth? We're not. And so we have to design systems that are capable of dealing with massive attacks of disruption, whether of man or nature, because unlike the Cold War and nuclear war, many massive attacks of disruption are not deterrable. You can't deter climate change. You can't deter acts of nature. And in some cases, you can't deter acts of man, uh, somebody who wants to get on the Internet and try and take it down and take down electrical power. And so what the book does is to say this is an urgent warning. It goes through the weaknesses of how our government is designed and in many ways. The executive branch of government is still organized as it was in 1789 when George Washington was president, and it presents a series of recommendations in terms of our politics to try to draw the nation together and to correct all these issues as well as deal with national security and national defense. So it sounds like in some respects, it's sort of an overall instruction manual, uh, one, a diagnostic report of what's going wrong in the country, governmentally and in the population at large. And it's also sort of an instruction manual on how to fix a lot of these key problems, uh, namely government dysfunction and polarization in the population at large. Can you explain, though, how these issues, uh, the issues of government debt, the issues of uh, division that uh, over the things like the covid pandemic, can you explain how that's also a national security threat on the magnitude of a Russia or a China? Sure. Well, um, first of all, I know you called the book a manual. You said it in a nice sense. I think it's a little bit more than a manual. But let me let me get into this. What's happened. And I will give you the date when it started. August 7, 1964, was the date when Congress passed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution that, in essence, declared war in Vietnam over a second series of North Vietnamese PT boat attacks that never took place. And since then, when at that stage, 75, 80 percent of people trusted government over the past almost 60 years, that figure has reversed. Who trusts government? Who trusts anything? Who trusts uh, the police, who trust lawyers, who trust the media, who trust Congress, who trust the Boy Scouts, who trust the clergy. And so what has happened is that 
confidence and credibility of institutions have been terribly degraded, which has led to polarization, which has been increased by both parties shifting to the far left and the far right. Now, this affects national security in several ways. First, the United States is not going to implode as the Soviet Union has. But unless we can fix our political system, I will guarantee you standards of living are going to decline for the vast majority of Americans, and the American dream is going to become increasingly elusive for children and grandchildren of the current um, generations. That by itself is a national security issue of great magnitude. Second, because we're so hugely polarized, it's almost impossible for us to be coherent about a threat. Um, If President Biden has a 55% approval rating over what he's doing vis-a-vis Ukraine, that will be a miracle. But people are going to be very divided. Generation XYZ, millennials, so forth, are going to say, what are we doing in Ukraine? The Republicans will come after Biden by saying he's weak. And so you're going to have a divided country. If that happened after Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, we'd be speaking Japanese. So the fact of a coherence that the country needs to deal with foreign policy issues uh, is being very much attacked by these massive attacks of disruption. Further, you know, I said government, failing government, government is not able to do the people's business. And that, of course, is going to have huge consequences. Remember what happened after 1860 when the country was divided over states' rights. We had a civil war. I'm not suggesting we're going to have a civil war, but divisions are going to be huge. If we can't protect ourselves against cyber, against all these other attacks, it can be disruptive. Imagine going without cell phones, going without electrical power, without electricity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things can happen. So the vitality of the nation could be sapped away by all these issues. Remember two years ago, Frank, not only when COVID hit, but think about all the storms that took electrical power away from from uh, Texas, the hacking of the gas, uh, the colonial gas pipelines that took gasoline away from the Northeast, of JRS, uh, GRS meatpacking and all the shortages, all these things contributed to huge disruption among society, our society, which is just not good for the health of the country. And indeed, it will certainly affect the economy. Look what the stock market is doing, simply because of all these disruptions that are caused by rising oil prices, which are now well above $100 a gallon. If the war in Ukraine continues, they can go further and further up, which means the economy is going to be hit, which means people's pocketbooks are going to be hit. All that's part of not just national security, but national security also includes well-being. And my book goes into chapter and verse about how we deal with all this and fixing it. And the big fix that I argue for is a national infrastructure investment fund. Now, it's very interesting. You go back in the book, and the book talks about 1918, 1920, and the Spanish flu. Remember, there was World War I that was going on. Woodrow Wilson was suffering from a stroke, and so there really was no president. 24 letter bombs blew up, killing two people, and the country was panicked by domestic terrorism far more than it was after September 11th. But what happened when the war was over um, and the new administration came in. The United States entered into the greatest economic boom in its history 
because it had electrification. Most of the country did not have electricity. Cars, Henry Ford and Walter Chrysler. And cars meant that you needed steel, you needed rubber, you needed gasoline, you needed hospitality. Led to this huge buildup and the and the economic rejuvenation. We can do that. But unfortunately, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that's been passed, which has not yet been able to be funded, right. is not big enough. And so what we need to do is do what we did in World War II with war bonds. We need to have about 3 or $4 trillion, which we can have by war bonds, in which American citizens can buy at, say, 2% above prime, a 30-year bonds guaranteed by the government, which would be then put along with the $1.2 trillion in this infrastructure investment uh, fund and then used to support infrastructure. But not only would it support infrastructure, but if you recall during the 2008 financial crisis, the Troubled Asset Relief Program um, made public, that is to say, made all the banks public companies in which the U.S. government took an equity Mm -hmm. slice. Mm-hmm. And so for the $800 billion we put out, the company, the government got back about $100 billion in profits when those companies were able to uh, return what they had in terms of debt. And so in this particular case, not only would you be getting user fees and tolls from improving bridges, roads, et cetera, et cetera, but in some areas for in medicine, uh, in, in green technologies, solar energy, et cetera, et cetera, you would take a slice of equity in the companies in which you were investing. So the government would become entrepreneurial, and over time, it would be able to build down its debt. And the good news is that unlike the current infrastructure bill, which has very, very slack, I think, oversight, because government is not good at oversight, you would have a lot of civilian participation. I was on a number of boards, and we were very, very uh, clear in our oversight of companies. If you're invested in the company, you're going to make sure that that money is well looked after. And so the oversight on this particular situation with an investment fund would be huge. And so you had three or four trillion dollars across the board, education, all the other areas that uh, that need investment. And in some cases, the government could take a slice of the action. And over time, if that was successful, they'd make money. This, to me, is a way of raising all boats. Which, now, at the far end, and this will make your listeners smile, I can fix Congress overnight with one regulation. Would you like to hear that? I I would. Before any member votes on a bill, he or she has to swear or affirm that they have read and understood. I I have a feeling that would lead to very little legislation being passed in the... uh... Well, let me just say that, let me just say that the uh, people said it's impossible. The uh, defense authorization bill was 4,000 pages in the House, 1,000 pages in the Senate. How can I possibly vote on something that big? If that's your argument, find another line of work. (laughs) Sarbanes-Oxley mandate that the CEO of any public company has to affirm that every figure that he or she allows the company to print in terms of profits, in terms of losses and balance sheets, has to be accurate. And if members of Congress cannot do that, then they should not serve. And I'll give you an example. In 1973, when Don Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense for the first time, the Defense Authorization Bill, in the middle of a war in Vietnam, at which at one stage we had over 500,000 Americans deployed, was 90 pages long. And so why is Congress going through all this nonsense when nobody reads the bills and they don't know what they're passing? That is derelict. 
and if you can't fix it, we need a new system. I, I, I don't think you'll get any arguments from either the conservatives or the liberals listening to us right now. We've been talking with Dr. Harlan Ullman. He is a globally recognized thought leader and strategic thinker. Uh, strategic thinker. He is the innovator of the concept of shock and awe. His new book is The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the world at large. It's available on Amazon or most places that books are sold. Let me end with this, Dr. Allman. One of the things that I get frustrated with, whether I'm talking about military affairs or taxes or infrastructure or how government works, I, if I say something that sounds a little conservative, I get a lot of our liberal listeners jumping down my throat and almost dismissing the entirety of four hours of radio that I do every day. If I say something that sounds a little liberal, I get the same thing from listeners on the right side of the political spectrum. It, it seems to me that we're almost in an era, and you cover this a bit in the book, where people want to close their ears and not even be exposed, let alone think about any any, any point of view other than the one that they're, that's in their partisan echo chamber. You've got some great ideas here for reform, for infrastructure reform, for political reform. But what is the first step in all this if the American populace is so divided that they can't even agree on whether or not the sky is blue, seemingly? Uh, that, Frank, that is a very perceptive observation. Let me just one other point. The shock and awe that I invented was not, not the shock and awe that's taken place either in in Desert Storm or the Iraqi Freedom, shock and awe was to win without fighting, and the Russians never implied shock and awe. It's, it's a concept like the Blitzkrieg is one of the most under, under misunderstood concepts in history, but that's just too bad. Um, your point is absolutely right, and the only way we get back is that we have to respect truth and fact. In the old days, when they were old days, you were entitled to your own opinion. Today, you're entitled to your own fact. And so we need to have, I don't want to say a truth commission, but we need to be able to understand what truth and fact are. I am a radical centrist. I think the extreme views of left and right are dangerous. But most dangerous is we ignore truth and fact. And it's very, very difficult when the credibility and trust and confidence in the government is such that nobody believes the government, no matter what happens, and this did not occur overnight, it's happened over years. My view is that the only way you can fix this, and and this is an interesting point, uh, which may seem a little bit orthogonal for the moment. You may not know this, but the United States has the second highest death rate to COVID of anybody in the world, except for Brazil. Now, here we have the best medical system in the world. Why is that? And Lancet, which is a leading British medical publication, argues because the United States is one of the unhappiest countries in the world, discontent with life among its population. And you find out that in countries where people are much more satisfied, the COVID rate is much lower. Now, I can't document that. I can only tell you what was said. And I think if that's true, the only way you fix this, Frank, is through my infrastructure investment fund, which will then make over time life much better, more productive for all Americans, because it will modernize the United States of the 21st century, education, 5G, Internet, 
um, all these things, these magnificent technologies we have in medicine, biogenics, and so forth. And over time, that will make Americans more content as we were after World War II. But this is not going to happen overnight. It's a long struggle. And along with failed and failing government, it is the pernicious effect of failed and failing government. And it's going to take time to repair. But I think that as long as we try to stress what truth and con- and truth and fact are, and it's going to be very difficult. I mean, for example, the election. I go on a number of radio programs where people are swearing that the election was stolen. That's nonsense. Every court decision showed that was not the case. And this is one of the most uh, uh, better handled elections in history. We've had a lot that were indeed not good. 1876, uh, Nixon losing in, ni- in 1960 when Kennedy actually bought West Virginia and Chicago. With the help of the mob. Yeah. Absolutely. But the fact is that there's no trust and confidence in government or in any institution. And this is something that you're not going to fix overnight. And it's something that can be done, I think, by improving the well-being of Americans over time. And that's my investment. Doc, in Dr. Fun. Allman, we're going to have to leave it there. I'd love to continue this conversation maybe Please, next thanks. week because there's a number of Happy other back. areas in the book that we didn't get into. And I encourage definitely people to buy the book. It's called The Fifth Horseman. Its author is Harlan Allman. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Good morrow, everybody. I'm Frank Moreno. Governor Kathy Hochul yesterday said some very interesting things in a address that was widely covered. She was talking about the future and the present of the workplace. So according to her, She says the coronavirus pandemic has likely killed the traditional schedule of commuting to the office for work five days a week. She said, quote, it may never be a five day week again. It may be four days with flexibility. It may be three days and a half. Uh, But still, the governor said she wants employees occupying office buildings at least three to four days at minimum to spur economic recovery. She said that in-person work spurs creativity and social development. People staying home now are missing a state comeback. Now, I covered this issue, the issue of people coming back to work at length, with Michelle Caruso Cabrera a few weeks ago. She wrote a great column in the New York Post in which she said the CEOs need to step up and do their part to get people back to work. And I have to say, I agree completely with Michelle Caruso Cabrera, and I agree with Governor Hochul. It is time 
for people to get back to work. I am very proud that since I started working here in uh, June of 2020, John Katsimatidis, our owner, has taken the attitude, and this was before everyone was eligible for the vaccine, he's taken the attitude, people should come to work. He wants people in the office. Not only does this create a more vibrant workplace environment than with everybody. Now, I talked to, I have a friend that works at uh, WOR. There's no plans to bring anybody back to work anytime soon. The, the on-air talent, the salespeople, everybody's remote. Everybody's working from home. In my view, and look, I, I recognize the benefits of working from home, and I'll get into those in a minute. But in, in my view, the idea of working in person, interacting with your fellow workers, going into an office, especially for a radio station, but I think this applies to many different businesses, there's simply nothing like it. And if New York is ever going to make a full recovery or close to a full recovery, New York City and New York State, we need to get people back into the office because if people are working from home in Rockland County or in New Jersey or in Long Island, instead of coming into Soho or Tribeca or uh, the Midtown, what does that mean? That means they're not going out for lunch. That means they're not going to the coffee cart around the corner to buy a cup of coffee and a donut from the guy on the street. And it really hinders the long-term economic recovery in New York. Additionally, Aside from the economic aspect of it, it hinders the recovery of morale for New Yorkers. So I agree that we need to be, you know, uh, that we need to be getting people back to work. I'm curious in, about your view of her remarks that we may never see a five-day work week again. So my question for you are, do you think, do you, do you see the work ranged for good, as Kathy Hochul seems to? My sister, Claudia, she's now uh, going into, you know, it's funny, this is not going to be one of the trivia questions today, but my sister, Claudia, was over, and uh, we were not sure if for the $1,000 minute I mentioned her name enough to make her a trivia question, so we're not making her a trivia question, but made me feel bad that maybe I don't mention her name enough for her to be a trivia question. But she goes to work now. Um, and, and now this COVID thing is pretty much over, in at least in New York, at least for the time being. Let's hope it stays that way. Um, she's going back into the office, barring any major projects or meetings, a day or two a week. A lot of other people, again, I mentioned my friend at WOR, they're not going in at all. And I think that's a real shame. So my question for you is, do the has the work week changed for good? That's question one. Two, are your employers bringing you back to the office or are you working remotely permanently? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. See, my wife is in an interesting position. She started a new job during the pandemic and she's Fully remote, but her job is based in Chicago, so they don't even have a New York office. It's not as if she would be working from uh, a New York office if everything was normal. Even under normal times, she would be working from home. But I'll tell you, I don't know what we would do 
if she did have a job in Midtown or something, I don't know that we would be able to, uh, even with somebody helping out looking after our son, I don't know that we'd be able to manage with her commuting an hour, hour and a half both ways, working a full day at the office and then coming back. It would be a big, big hurdle. So I was talking about this with Curtis uh, when off the air when I had Michelle Caruso Cabrera on, and he said to me, well, you know, it was a good interview that you did, and she raised a lot of good points, but ultimately people just don't want to go back to work. They don't want to go back into an office. By and large, they like the freedom of being able to have lunch at home, make their own lunch, look after their kids. And then I mentioned, yeah, that's the case with my wife. She loves working from home now. So I'm curious what you think of what the governor is doing here making state workers come back to the office at least three or four days a week. And two, I'm curious as to your view of her analysis of is the five-day work week, the conventional five-day work week, permanently gone? Is it permanently a thing of the past? And I'm also curious, are your employers bringing you back to work in the office? Or are you working remotely indefinitely? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Tom on Long Island. Hello, Tom. Hey, what up, Frank? How you doing? I'm hanging in there, Tom. Thanks. Awesome. I want to say one thing about what you're talking about now about the working at home, but I also have one comment on Russia. So would you be able to leave me on just to say one comment Tom, go ahead. The floor is yours, Tom. Go ahead. So awesome. Thank you. So number one about this. Look, things change, number one, in the world. You know, every 100 years look different. Every 50 years kind of look very different. So, you know, if people want to stay home now and if that's how things turned out to be, like, so be it. And I love how these government leaders pretend like they're our, you know, mentor. They work for us. They don't tell us what's moral. They don't tell us what, you know, they can have their opinion, just like you and I can have our opinion. But they're nothing more than people who have to wipe themselves in the bathroom, too. So there's no... No reason we should respect them in any which way, shape, or form. Well, well and and I think it's, hang on, though, yeah, but, and, and I want to hear your comment on Russia. But the difference between a governor, for instance, and you and me is that it's the governors that get to make the policy about whether or not state workers have to go back into right. the office or right. whether they get exactly. to keep working from home. Right. Yeah, understood. Exactly. So on that, I would just like to say that uh, work is a very broad spectrum. Like Navy SEALs need to be in person. You can't be a Navy SEAL from home, right? So it obviously really depends. You can't broad stroke this in one thing. There are, there are thousands of different types of jobs, and some of them need to be in person and some of them not so much. So it's a very great, great area. But, yeah, in terms of the uh, uh, mandate or whatever it is, it's very hard to say that all state workers should go back. Yeah, you know, I was just talking more just on the principle. I'm not exactly sure, you know, on the uh, government and things like that. But, okay, uh, one thing about this whole Ukraine thing, you know, contrary to what everyone else is saying, like the, almost the instinctive uh, argument, which is, hey, let's fuel Ukraine, send them in ammo and all those things. I, I was actually thinking the opposite, because the more we you know, cut off their access to oil, because the more we do that, the more we're going to upset Putin, which will give him, which he's very unstable now, more of a reason to go to the nukes and things like that. So, no, I don't want to have any innocent Ukrainians die for no reason. 
But at the same time, by fueling Ukraine is only going to make Putin much more because it's like a fight. Things only escalate. What do you say about that? Well, uh, thank you for the call. I'm going to get into this in a big way with Michael Averco at 430. It's going to be one of the first. I'm, in fact, let me make a note to myself to make sure to ask him about it. Um, it's going to be one of the first things that I ask him because I am very conflicted about this. On the one hand, I don't want to see this. Uh, I don't want to see this continue. I don't want to see this dispute continue. Um, on the other hand, right, what's what I don't want to see Putin's aggression into a foreign country essentially be rewarded with American complacency. Uh, so I don't know what to do. My attitude when it comes to all these conflicts is almost always America should stay out of it rather than picking a side. Um, so. Uh, that is sort of where I – that's where my impulse is. But I'll get into it with um, with uh, Michael Averco and other experts in the coming days, weeks, and months. 800-848-WABC. Roger is in Queens. Hello, Roger. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Here's the thing with me. Um, I, I talked to my daughter who works in Manhattan or did work in Manhattan. Um, she right now, she stays at home with her son. Um, she um, works from home. And according to her company, which is, I won't mention it, but they're pretty prestigious, they're getting more productivity out of their workers by staying home. And I think it's something that, you know, this may have been discovered since with, with the pandemic, that I don't think that anybody expected that you know, they're getting more productivity, they're they're having less sick days, and people are just overall happy. This again according to my daughter. Well, no, I and I've you know, seen some, some of that, that same sense to me. I've seen some of that yeah, same right. data as well. Yeah. So you And I, I don't know. Um I think, you know, again, if if I'm a if I'm a CEO of a company, I like to keep my employees happy and if they're giving me more out of themselves by staying home, and uh, it's probably costing me less. I don't have to pay, pay these these extravagant uh, uh, Manhattan rents or whatever like that. You know something? I think I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna stay with uh, having my employees work at home as long as they're they're producing. Well, I I totally get that, Roger. So it, it sounds like if you were the governor, you wouldn't have done what Governor Hochul did yesterday and mandate that state workers have to return to the office. I think it's some, you know, there are some jobs. I think you, you the, 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 that that you have to, you, you know, you have to be there. You know, there's certain jobs when, when you, especially when you're dealing with the public or, you know, or or, or taxpayers or whatever. There's certain jobs where you have to have one on one. You know, so I again, um, it's a tough one, but I I think uh, you know, in a way, I agree with the governor. In a way, I'm like, well. You know what? Private companies leave it up to the private companies and see what they want to do. State the state workers or city workers that might be a totally different story. All right. Well, fair enough, Roger. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, Frank. Listen, um, my sister was in the World Trade Center, and thank God she made it out and everything. So, anyway, when. When they when the, when it went down, obviously they had to move their offices. They moved over to uh, Brooklyn, right? And nobody was going to work. Everybody because everybody was working from home for a while, so they got the offices set up. 
Everybody's working from home. And when they finally opened, they spent all this money to, to build, put these offices together in Brooklyn and nobody was really going. And when they, when the company saw nobody was going, they were like, Hey, guess what? Like that guy just said, we're, we're, we're going to save a lot of money and just shut the offices down and everybody could just stay working from home. And they're working like she used to work eight, nine to five. Now she works like eight till whenever, maybe nine, 10 o'clock at night for the same money. They get a lot more money. And, but then again, that is what, Kathy Hochul's talking about because it's bad for the economy that right. way because yeah, yeah, all and these people are not spending the money. First of all, I'm, I'm glad your sister was okay after uh, the World Trade Center and good, good points all, Chris. The governor acknowledged what you and Roger are talking about. The governor acknowledged that there's concern among employers that they're going to lose workers who've gotten used to ro- working remotely during the pandemic. The governor acknowledged that there's concern that if they order them back to the office five days a week, these people won't want to do it and they'll either quit or look for another job that will let them work from home three, four, five days a week. And the head of uh, the city's largest business group, Kathy Wild, who's a regular on the Cats at Night show and on the Cats Roundtable, she talked about that. She said Governor Hochul's met with a lot of employers over the past few months, and she is accurately reflecting their view of the future of office work. People expected back in the office, but with some greater flexibility than in the past. I guess that's a good thing. I guess we want workers to have more flexibility. But what I really want as a New Yorker and as somebody that uh, has a vested interest in seeing this city thrive again, what I want is a full New York comeback. And I don't really see us having a full New York comeback if so many of these offices remain empty. So I'm glad the governor is ordering people back to work, the state workers. I'm glad that um, she made a point of urging other employers to do the same thing. And I'm glad Michelle Caruso Cabrera was out banging the drum for this as well. I get – look. And again, this is openly hypocritical on my part because both my wife and I, our lives are made so much easier by the fact that she's able to work from home. So here I am advocating for the kind of policy which, if my wife was affected by it, would make our lives much worse. So it's easy for me to advocate for this when my life will remain just as peachy as it is now. I get that. I'm not immune to charges of hypocrisy. That being said, I still think the best thing for the city, the best thing for the state, and the best thing for the country, quite frankly, is to get people back in an office again or whatever their workplace happens to be. In, in my case, it's a radio station, but whatever the case happens to be. I, I, you know, There's another radio station that I used to work at where they still don't have people, including the hosts, come in that often. The hosts rarely come in. And when I go back and visit occasionally, it's like a ghost town. And I have to tell you, it's reflected in the energy of the radio station. When When I not only see it, but when I hear it, that level of energy is not the same when people don't interact in person. And there's a level of camaraderie that uh, that takes shape when coworkers will go out uh, and uh, have drinks with one another after after work. There's a level of camaraderie that uh, will take place when you uh, share cupcakes for Molly's birthday, for instance. 
And that's not present if it's being done in the form of a Zoom happy hour. At least I don't believe it's the same. And now that the uh, virus is not the threat that it was a year ago or two years ago, now that we've seen a decline of this COVID, even the Omicron variant, the lifting of mask mandates, most people vaccinated, let's get people back to work. That's what I say. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Those of you that uh, are on hold, we're going to get to you. But uh, John in Bayonne has been very patiently holding. Hello, John. Hi, Frank. Uh, the interview with uh, who, was, who wrote that book that you uh, had the author on? Uh, Dr. Harlan Ullman. Ullman? O-M-A-N? He's one of the brightest military strategists in the history of our country. He he taught – you know, uh, let me just read for you because, you know, he, he gets a little – embarrassed when I when I cite the praise that others have had for him. This is what uh, General Colin Powell said of um, of of Harlan Ullman, because uh, Colin Powell was Harlan Ullman's uh, teacher, uh, excuse me, a student at the National War College. And what uh, Powell said was, um, you know, that uh, a teacher who, this is in his book. A teacher who raised my vision several levels was Harlan Ullman, a Navy lieutenant commander who taught military strategy. So far, I had known men of action, but few who were also authentic intellectuals. Ullman was that rarity, a scholar in uniform, a line officer qualified for command at sea, also possessed of one of the best most provocative minds I've ever encountered. That's Colin Powell, who's a pretty bright guy himself, saying that of Harlan Ullman. But go ahead. What was your comment? Very good. I mean, I I had some problems with, uh, first of all, he said something about uh, people uh, these days are into their own facts. Well, he made up a couple of facts uh, that aren't true. First of all, he referred to January 6th as an insurrection, and it wasn't an insurrection. He referred to climate change as a fact, and it's not. It, it's science, and it's not settled. He seemed to have settled it on his own. And then he called, you know, that the election wasn't, you know, rigged in some way, shape, or form. It, there's plenty of evidence that it was. So, you know, this guy, as bright as he is, he's a lot brighter than me and you probably combined and everybody combined. I'm not saying he's not, but he seemed a little bit uh, off the uh, rails a little bit with the insurrection, the climate change. I mean, he sounded like a real lib to me. What do you think, Frank? No, I, I mean, I certainly don't agree with that at all. Uh, I First of all, I mean, you, you say uh, I have no problem debating climate change, but there's no doubt about the fact that the world is getting hotter. The world is getting hotter. Now, we can you we can explore if that's due to man-made uh, greenhouse gas emissions or for something else. I mean, in my view, the evidence is pretty overwhelming in the scientific community that um, it is due to greenhouse gas emissions. But let's say we're not ready to assign a causation to it yet. The world is getting hotter. And that's leading to a severity when it comes to storms like we haven't seen. So the question becomes, how does, when we have something like Hurricane Sandy, how do we better prepare ourselves for a climate change, uh, an era where um, the world is hotter, right? That is the kind of thing that I think the... Um, that is a crisis that we're not really properly addressing. 
But uh, read the book. I would encourage you. I'm not going to sit here and be the lawyer for somebody that's commanded 150 combat missions in Vietnam. And look, there are things that I disagree with Harlan Allman on. But um, as Colin Powell said, the guy's not only a warrior, but he's an intellectual. Um, He's got more degrees than a a thermometer. We'll continue with your calls. Any subject is fair game this hour. We'll do the AC report at 3.30, and then uh, we'll talk Russia and Ukraine after the $1,000 minute at 4.30. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Hallelujah, hallelujah, come you sinners and gather round. The great Jerry Lewis singing Hallelujah. You know, in that Martin and Lewis duo, you never really think of Jerry as the singer. But he sounds pretty good here, I must say. Uh, Not necessarily Dean Martin level, but still pretty entertaining. Jerry Lewis, of course, these days, probably uh, best known at least this week for being the uh, subject of two new allegations of sexual harassment. Um, one quick story I want to bring to your attention, and then I'll get back to your calls in just a moment. The I'm going to link to this article on my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. That's uh, facebook.com slash m-o-r-a-n-o-fan. There's an image that has been captured by the Mars Perseverance rover of a metal drill lying on a metal drill bit lying on the planet's surface. NASA's Perseverance rover on Mars captured this image of a cylindrical metallic object on the surface of Mars. So the object is most definitely a drill bit. Perseverance apparently dropped it, or at least that's what they want us to believe. Now, I'll go along with NASA on this, although I'm always a little conspiratorial when it comes to space and UFOs and space travel. But that object that's required, that's um, in this image, and you can see it on my Facebook page, it was acquired on February 16th, 2022. Some people are saying, including the Twitter account UFOinterest.org, some people are saying that this could be a proof of ancient aliens as exposed on these days by, uh, or something. Or it could be a drill bit intentionally dropped by the NASA Perseverance. So you take a look and uh, make your own judgment. I think it's just really neat that um, we have something on the surface of Mars sending these images back. And I'm uh, currently in talks with Dr. Sky to set up a day for him to come back next next week to update us on what's happening on Mars and in space travel in general, because there is 
quite a bit happening on that front. Now, uh, I do not really watch the show Wheel of Fortune. I, I have nothing against it, but it's really just not for me. So when I came home, uh, I le- usually I leave the house around 10 p.m., but on Tuesday night, I left early. I, I left around 3.30 p.m. because first I had the event with Andrew and Rudy Giuliani and Curtis. Then I had the Jeremy Murphy book party at Slate. Then I had the Rayo's dinner with Brian Peroni. It was a whirlwind day. So I left seven hours earlier than I normally leave. And my wife and I generally try to watch Jeopardy together. Some nights were successful. Some nights were not. And then after 7.30, that's it. You know, I'll go back to show prep. Uh, I'll just talk with Rachel. Maybe we'll watch something else together. I'll, if I'm left to my own devices and it's not baseball season or or there's not a football game on I'll watch New York One's Inside City Hall, which is a show that I really enjoy. Um, or I'll just, you know, prepare for the show. So I, I don't watch Wheel of Fortune, which comes on at 7.30. Yesterday, I, my wife is telling me, Carmine, that's our son, Carmine and I watched Jeopardy, and we just kind of left the television set on, and we started watching Wheel of Fortune. And then she's describing to me an episode that happened on uh, Tuesday night where there's three contestants taking a, uh, an eight turns and ten attempts to solve the puzzle. So the clue shows the, – the, the way Wheel of Fortune works, if you're not familiar with it, is you have to um, fill in the letters to pick out a word or phrase. So – the letters that were filled out was another feather blank N Y O blank R blank A blank. Now, I would think anybody with a fourth grade education would figure out that this would the answer here was another feather in your cap. But the players took several tries to get there. And it left everybody frustrated. So Laura Machado had three guesses to win as Pat Sajak and Vanna White looked on. However, her answers included, this was her guess, when there was only one, uh, you know, one guess left. Another feather in your hat. That was one of her guess, guesses. You know what another one of her guesses was? Another feather in your lap. Another feather in your map. Now, and Laura Machado is apparently a school teacher. Or she does something in education. I don't remember if she's a a teacher or a school principal. And it's really so alarming to see that society has fallen so far that one of the people... Uh, and I'm going to link to this so you can see the video. This is going to be on my Facebook page as well at uh, facebook.com slash Fan. One of the people who is playing a role in educating our young people can't even figure out it's another feather in your cap. They've, another feather in your map? I mean, I, I don't like to judge people, but this person shouldn't be teaching anybody. 
So my wife said to me, and this was before it became a big news story. Now it's been covered in the New York Post. It's been covered in CNN. It's been covered any, everywhere. My wife said to me, um, as soon as that happened, we turned off the program because I don't want our son exposed to that kind of stupidity. And I said, good. That, that's exactly why I married you. So I was pleased to see that. And 800-848-9222, uh, that's uh, 800-848-WABC. Uh, somebody commenting on the Facebook group, I saw that story about Mars, thought it was from a fake site. Can't believe you're mentioning it. No, that image of the drill bit is real. Uh, and But again, the very conventional explanation for it is it was dropped by the Mars Perseverance itself. 800 848-9222. Milton is in Manhattan. Hello, Milton. Hello, Frank. I just uh, want to go back to the baseball discussion and just remind you and your radio audience that when President Kennedy assumed office, his Secretary of Labor, Arthur Goldberg, as one of his first acts intervened in the settlement of the Metropolitan Opera Strike. Well, I'm aware of that. I mean, presidents have historically uh, been willing to flex their muscle to end a labor dispute. And I wish President Biden would do that here. Yeah, because this was another cultural asset of the country, similar to baseball. And it was deemed worthy of his intervention. Yeah, no, I I, uh, completely agree. Uh, And I appreciate you pointing that out, Milton. 800-848-9222. Stephen is in Mount Vernon. Hello. Hello, Frank. Good morning. And um, I want to talk to you about the uh, working remotely. Mm-hmm. Well, I have three. I have three family members that do that right now. You know, they do it almost every day. And I think what really, what they're really feared of is I don't think of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I think of the crime that's escalating in the uh, the New York area. Yeah, a lot of people brought this up when I, mean, you know, when, when you I had mach- to wait for buses or or uh, subways or you know or transportation because of what's happening. Yeah, uh, that was one of the issue that people one of the issues that people raised when I had M- Michelle Caruso Carrera on uh, talking about this. So uh, I get that that's a very real concern, and we're going to have to do something about the crime, regardless whether people are working from home or working remotely. But, um, look, historically, I know crime is up significantly over the last year or two. But if you compare, and I don't want to sound like um, Bill de Blasio here, but if you compare the level of crime, violent crime in New York in the year 2022 compared to 1991, 1992, there's no comparison. It was much, much, much worse then. And yet people still worked in offices. They still went into work. Now, obviously, in 1991, 1992, they didn't have the same sort of technology that we have today that enables remote work. But it shows that people were still able to go into work even when crime was a big problem back then, just as it is right now. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello. Yes. Uh, hi, hi, Frank. Tom. Yes. Frank? Yes. Yeah, I'd like to say this, that baseball, where baseball is concerned, a, a lot of people don't have the money to go to the big games. And I think that the minor leagues 
and the private teams would pick up the slack, but they have to be advertised. Uh, and you, the station like yours should report on minor league baseballs and private teams. You know, Tom, I got to be honest with you. I think that's a great idea. And I, um, you know, who mentioned something similar to me? And thanks for the call, Tom. Lee Cavino, who's a veteran and uh, a great guy, a community activist. I was at, I saw him Saturday or Sunday at Brendan Lantry swearing in as civil court judge. And Lee Cavino asked me because our owner, John Katsimatidis, also owns the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Are they going to carry the games on the radio? And I said, which is the truth, I have no idea. I don't know. I said, I hope they at least carry some of the games. There's no reason, for instance, that we couldn't carry, even if we didn't want to disrupt the radio programming, there's no reason we couldn't carry the games on the Internet, on the website. Like if you go to WABCradio.com, you see there's one channel for WABC, one channel for 107.1, and one channel for – Music Radio 77, WABC. What if, as part of WABC Sports, you had not just the Ferry Hawks game, but the pregame and the postgame show just like a lot of other radio stations do for Major League games, and just like we used to do. Uh, WABC, we used to carry the Yankees, and for a time in the 60s, we used to carry the Mets. So imagine if we were to do that with the Ferry Hawks. I agree with you, Tom. Look, an independent league team is never going to have the level of play, uh, the quality of play that, that that major league teams have. Never. But I will tell you, when I worked for the Brooklyn Cyclones, for people like Gary Perrone and, and Steve Cohen and R.C. Rudiman, the fans didn't care. The fans didn't care that the players were not as good as major league players because they saw that the fans were giving it their all and playing their heart out, not because they were worried about it affecting their contract, but because they wanted to give their all for the fans. And I think, to your point, Tom, if we, if stations like this one were to give broader exposure to independent league and minor league teams, maybe you would see more fans gravitating towards independent league teams. You know, when it comes to basketball and football, I know a lot of people that are bigger fans of college football and college basketball than they are professional basketball and professional football. Bruce Cutler, for instance, uh, the famed defense attorney, he's one of those guys that has not watched an NFL game in years. You could ask him anything about college football, and you could wake him up in the middle of the night from a dead sleep, and he will tell you anything you want to know about college football. And I... I think maybe you'd see the same thing if these independent league teams and minor league teams got broader exposure. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, yeah, just because it's convenient and easier to stay home and, um, you know, a certain percentage could stay home, it's, in the long run, it's not good for society because then you lose out on the coffee shops and, like you mm. said, the discussions the and the energy level. And, um, you know, like even now when things are starting to open up and everything, I mean, I went to the veterinarian's office uh, today, and it, it's like, um, you know, oh, people, you know, like people gathered for a purpose. It's wonderful, you know, uh, discussion and 
and uh, people are like walking zombies. There's no, uh, the streets are like weird. It's like, you know, it's healthy for us to get out and mingle. And one business leads to another business. Like you said, it's a shame all the small mom and pop businesses that are going under because they don't have that business. So in the end, it's not good. And we become isolationists. And then if we go back into the cities, the, the pushback from people complaining will put a control on the crime level because people will not be able to stand it. Society would not be able to stand it more. But now that the cities are, you know, partially empty, uh, you know, crime can rule. Pamela, I, I agree with everything you said, 100%. And I'll just uh, underscore, and, and thanks for the call, 800-848-9222. I'll underscore the point you made about the value of in-person interaction. I will tell you that so many of the most important things that I've learned about radio uh, were not in a classroom or in a book or in a staff meeting, but in very informal meetings over a beer or over a sandwich with my coworkers, people that were more seasoned than I was, I would take them to lunch or meet, or go to a bar with them and ask them all sorts of questions about their uh, career in radio. Now, I'm sure the same can be said of profession after profession, supply chain management or accounting or the law or policing or whatever the case may be, any profession under the sun – I would bet a lot of you benefited from the informal um, meetings that you had w- as a result of of seeing saying to your coworker, "Hey, why don't we go out and grab a sandwich? Why don't we go grab lunch? Why don't we grab a drink?" If everybody is interacting with one another via Zoom, that opportunity for spur of the moment socialization, which leads to mentor, is not there. If it's there, if they create it in some sort of a, a Zoom laboratory of some sort, it's not the same. It's not the same if it's forced. It's much better if it's organic. And I think you're going to end up, if you, these companies continue to work remotely, you're going to end up with a next generation of workers that is not as well prepared, either socially or professionally, as the generation that um, that they took over for. And, you know, this harkens back to the conversation that we had five days ago, six days ago with Bob Wolf about the hope skills or the HICA skills. And there are all sorts of skills these days in schools and in the workplace that people are not learning. And you want to call them soft skills, whatever. They're important skills. And I think this uh, continued keeping people isolated from one another is not helpful. And I'm glad that the Governor Hochul, Governor Hochul's announcement yesterday took a big step in the right direction. She says, though, that even with the changes that she's making to state workers, even with her encouraging employers to get people back to work, she's saying that the five-day work week, in-person work week, might be over. What say you? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. April is in the Queens. Hello, April. Hi. Hi, Frank. Um, I wanted to give my personal opinion on, you know, what the governor's saying. Um, I understand that for some companies they can afford, you know, to offer less than a five-day work week. But I think the main thing is how much do the New York City residents, New Yorkers, how much do they really love their city? 
how much do they really want our city to be a magnet to people around the world to say New York? Not, you know, it's not everywhere that they, you, your, your city is loved because of its magnetism, its spark, its energy. I think people are very selfish. No one, it's the people, I mean, the companies that fill up these um, big office complexes, skyscrapers, if they think, oh, well, I'm making enough money this way, or I'm even making more, why are they so selfish that they don't care about the city itself? It's not all about what the individual business. It's about a city. We're supposed to be a, excuse me, a team, like working together. Sometimes you have to suffer a little, like our military, the, the amount of um, percentage of um, you know, people who join the military, they do it because they love the country. I think people are very selfish. And well, they say, no, I'm a- not going to do it. April, I agree with you. And look, I don't want to put um, employers that want to have their employees uh, work from home in the same category as people that fight and die for the country. But your point's well taken is, you know, there's so much emphasis, rightly so in my view, Placed on civic duty and patriotism. However, when it comes to being a cheerleader for your city or for your state, there's almost there's no incentive um, to encourage people to, yeah, be a cheerleader for New York, work to build New York, work to make it a better place um, than the one that you found it and root for it. Instead, instead, you you know, you, you hear so often it seems like people can't wait to move out of here. Well, OK, well, some of us want to live here and some of us want to continue to improve our city. And I think you're right. Look, is, is this going to require an, a sacrifice not only on the part of individuals, but employers? Yes. But for the sake of maintaining New York State's place as the Empire State and New York City's place as the capital of the world, we should make that sacrifice. Right. And I have a business in the city. I have a small uh, business, a newsstand. You know what a newspaper stand is. And um, the city is about, I'm not kidding. I would say, in my opinion, it's about 50% back to normal. And that's on a good day. We sit there in our business waiting to see people walk by. All the storefronts, all those entrepreneurs that put their money and their heart into making this city a place where people can feel excitement. I used to leave my house in Queens. I was in Queens. It's still New York City. But I used to leave my house saying, oh, I'm going into Manhattan today, not even planning on buying anything, just to be there to get the energy, to see the city, to see the people, the way they're dressed. All that is gone. April, you're so right. I I wish there were 8 million more New Yorkers like you. And if you would, I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, Tell Molly where I can find your newsstand because I I want to try and patronize it because I'm still one of the people that buys these old-fashioned newspapers uh, because – I am, um, you know, uh, look, I agree with everything April said. She said it a lot better than I could have, a lot better than Governor Hochul said it. And uh, she's exactly right. It's going to it's going to hurt a little bit. But we got to get people back to work in person. As tough as it is, you know, it's funny. People are commenting on this uh, video, this Wheel of Fortune video that I posted. And uh, you can see it if you haven't seen it. You know what? If you haven't seen it, it's only going to depress you. But if you if you still, in spite of my warning, want to watch it, Go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And Ellen comments on it. Hard to believe, but could it be, and we're talking about the phrase, a feather in your cap, could it be that this is an old-fashioned phrase? No! It could be that these three contestants are idiots. 
And the Wheel of Fortune has become a, a place where they send the people that are not smart enough to make it on Jeopardy. And we can see why they're not that smart. And to think that one of these people is teaching children is just horrible. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, So yesterday was Ash Wednesday, first day of Lent, uh, which means, in my case, no booze for 40 days. No booze until at least Holy Thursday. Uh, I know some people wait until Easter, but uh, my reading of the Lenten restrictions are whatever you're refraining from, you get to indulge Holy Thursday. But uh, I guess there's varying views. But... um, You know, it's funny what I've noticed for years and I've noticed this since I was a child. When you go specifically, not just in Catholic um, churches, but Episcopalian as well. When you when you go to get ashes on Ash Wednesday, there are all sorts of different styles of the priest or, or the pastor doing the ashes on your forehead. And some people there's like maybe four or five different variations. Some, it just looks like a smudge. Others, it looks like a, a tiny little cross. Other, and it's supposed to be a cross. Others, it looks like a big cross. Now, my, the priest where I went, Father Eddie, great guy, used to be a ball player, was actually drafted by the New York Metropolitans. The priest where I went, he made a big cross on my forehead. And I like that. I like that. It, look, it should look like something. It shouldn't just look like you have dirt on your face. But anyway... I then went home and I, you know, I'm not looking in the mirror and I had forgotten that I had ashes on my forehead. And I, at one point, I guess had an itch or something on my forehead and I wiped my brow and now it looks like I have this giant black smear across my forehead. So it's one of those things where I don't think you're supposed to wash your face until, I guess, I don't know, the next day. But it does look a little ridiculous, not because I have this black smudge, but because I have this smeared black smudge on my forehead. But who knows? Uh, perhaps this will be a reminder for me to uh, pray a little more, fast a little more, and uh, not be so concerned Frank, about I can't concentrate when you look like this. You look ridiculous, man. About smudges. I will say uh, yesterday, uh, today actually, I, I guess, was day seven of the deviled eggs still being in the refrigerator. And my rule is if it's in the refrigerator, it's still got to be safe to eat. So I did sample another one of the uh, deviled eggs today. And uh, still, uh, again, not as good as it was yesterday. Certainly not as good as it was six days ago. Still pretty good, though. Still pretty good. And um, my Aunt Camille... 
did make this week's batch of egg salad. And I, in honor of both Molly's birthday and a spirit of Christian fraternity, have chosen to bring in the egg salad and share it with my coworkers. So I have a memo that's going to be going out this morning inviting everybody that works on the floor to try some of this egg salad if they get uh, if they get tired of eating the seven-day-old deviled eggs. But uh, who knows? You know, look, if it's still here tomorrow, I'm probably going to have to try one of these tomorrow as well. But for my sake and for yours, hopefully it won't be. Uh, 800-848-WABC. You can join the Facebook group if you're a listener to this show. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. There's a a lot of great discussions going on there now. Uh, But I want to thank Jerry, who commented that he listened to the most recent edition of The Racket Report. Uh, Actually, no, it was not. Yeah, Jerry Geary who said uh, this was another outstanding podcast episode of The Racket Report, and he links to it. If you haven't heard it yet, I do hope you'll check it out. You can go to WABCradio.com, or you could just search The Racket Report, wherever podcasts are are available. In this edition of The Racket Report, I spoke with a gentleman who spent 62 months in prison. They called him the mob boss of Hollywood, in the tradition of a Bugsy Siegel and others. But the name of his book is the accidental gangster from insurance salesman to mob boss of Hollywood. Uh, my guest was Ori Spado, and I asked him, why do you call yourself you know, an accidental gangster? And I thought his response was quite interesting. How does someone become an accidental gangster? You know, Frank, that originated in my head while walking the yard when I was in prison in Lompoc. Being an avid reader all my life, and right to this day, I still read every single day. I always have books on my nightstand next to me. I read read myself to sleep every night. While in prison, I read over 300 books in my uh, 62 months that I did. And... Not dreaming that I would ever re- write a book, but, you know, you got nothing to do when you're in prison but think. Think and do your time. And I'm walking the yard and said, if I ever wrote a book, I would call it The Accidental Gangster. And then let the people read the book and let them decide was it accidental or not. So it's a pretty interesting interview. We spoke for about 40 minutes. Uh, I do encourage you to check it out. Like I said, WABCradio.com or uh, just go on um, to where whatever your podcast app is and search um, The Racket Report. And you should subscribe. And I'd appreciate it if, in addition to subscribing, you left a nice review. Got a text message here from a, a listener. And you can also text message me at 816-8Morano. That's 8168Moreno. Frank, the rover, talking about the Mars Perseverance, the rover also picked up what looks like an alien face with a few legs hidden in a rock. What do you think of that? Now, I didn't see it, and I believe this is Paul. Uh, I didn't see it, but I – look, rocks, sometimes you see all sorts of strange things. So if it really was an alien or something – I don't think NASA would be releasing those images. I think they would study them six ways from Sunday before letting the public look at them personally. But who knows? Look, I'm all for letting our minds wander at this time of the morning. uh, Next hour, 
Is it right to bring back an extinct species? We'll explore it in just a moment. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone this is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano it's thursday that means we got the ac report coming up in a half hour we're going to talk with john boyd of the boyd company we're going to talk a little bit about um atlantic city's economic future what gambling has to do with that what that means for new jersey and the region so it's a, a discussion that i'm very much looking forward to but first i want to tell you a little bit about the tasmanian tiger The Tasmanian Tiger is not a Looney Tunes character. The Tasmanian Tiger is one of Australia's most iconic species. It it looks really cool. It's got a tail. It looks kind of tough. It's got some stripes. It is one of Australia's most iconic species, even though it has been extinct since 1936. This slender, striped marsupial maintains its place in Australian mythology because of a constant string of supposed sightings that has captivated the public and the media. Every so often, it's like the Loch Ness Monster almost. Oh, that was a Tasmanian tiger. It was a Tasmanian tiger. Every so often, there's a thought, well, maybe, just maybe, they're not extinct. So just last year, one group claimed to have spotted the Tasmanian tiger paddling, padding through Australia's forests. Now, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, uh, or the person in the group. The claims were never verified. Sadly, though, the Tasmanian tiger, most people believe, is gone. But with advances in biotechnology, that might not have to be the case. A group of researchers from the University of Melbourne, plan to bring back the Tasmanian tiger from the dead. On March 1st, that was two days ago, they announced the creation of the Thylakine, uh, uh, no, uh, Thylakine Integrated Genetic Restoration Research Lab, T-I-G-R-R. Get it? It's like Tigger. T-I-G-R-R lab, thanks to a $3.6 million philanthropic donation. Andrew Pask is a marsupial evolutionary biologist and a Tasmanian tiger expert at the University of Melbourne. He's going to lead the project. And he notes that, yes, the grand challenge of the research is to bring back the Tasmanian tiger from the dead. However, while that's the headline goal... The biotechnology that will be developed along the way is critical for marsupial conservation efforts today. And this is what he this is the first place my brain went. And I'm sure yours as well. When you heard about that, this is what Andrew Pask said. 
it's not all Jurassic Park and, you know, we shouldn't be playing God. We actually need a lot of this stuff for protecting marsupials right now. So, look, I'm all for protecting marsupials. I'm all for researching how best to protect marsupials. I'm all for researching the history and the biology of the Tasmanian tiger. And there have been calls to resurrect the Tasmanian tiger for over 20 years. Back in 1999, there was a paleontologist by the name of Michael Archer who took over as director of the Australian Museum and committed around $57 million to a project that hoped to clone the iconic marsupial from old specimens. It was called a fantasy at the time, and by 2005, it was canned. Since then... We have seen two decades of breakthroughs in gene editing, which have allowed scientists to dream big about de-extinction. The process of bringing extinct species back from the dead. The major revolution is thanks to something called CRISPR, which is a powerful DNA cut and paste tool, which has all sorts of implications for humans as well, CRISPR. We can... I've done whole shows about CRISPR and whether or not if you can edit your unborn child's uh, DNA in such a manner to make them um, a better biological specimen, should you do so? That's a subject for another day. But it presents a way for scientists to recreate the genetic code of species that are long extinct. So the technology is at the heart of a proposal to bring back the Woolly Mammoth, by 2027. In September, the company that's doing that, and I talked about it at the time, announced that it had received $15 million in funding and would attempt to have the first calves in four to six years and rewild herds of mammoth into the Arctic. Now, bringing back a species requires understanding its DNA code from start to finish. Scientists would then be able to take cells from a related species and use CRISPR to change that code. For instance, the Tasmanian tiger is related to other marsupial species, the mouse-like Dunart. Dunart. It turns out the Dunart is pretty much the closest thing to a Tasmanian tiger of any living marsupial. So starting with a, a Dunart cell, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing Dunart, you can edit in all of the DNA differences to turn it into a Tasmanian tiger. Um, think of it like turning a copy of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone into a copy of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. You can leave some of the words, characters and sentences intact, but you're going to need to rejig and reorder the text so it becomes a completely different book. So I want to ask, now that the TIGRR lab is up and running, and they're all prepared. They've got millions of dollars pledged for this. And they're all prepared to use gene editing techniques to bring back an extinct species. I want to ask you the same question about the Tasmanian tiger that I did about the woolly mammoth. Should we? If science is able to do this, and it seems like science is in a position to do this, should they? 800-848-WABC. Now, in my view, this is a lot different than trying to bring back the dinosaurs, like in Jurassic Park. 
because the extinction of the dinosaurs was not caused by humans or overhunting or anything like that. When there's a case to be made that in the case of the Tasmanian tiger or even the woolly mammoth, that humans did play a role in the extinction of these species. So if the humans and human technology can be in a position to bring back these species, should they? 800-848-9222. Or is it as simple as, look, however they became extinct, they're extinct. And by doing this, we're playing God. What do you think? 800-848-9222. we got two open lines if you want to comment. It's 1-800-848-WABC. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Morning, Frank. Um, I, I am concerned what kind of impact that it would have on the environment now. And were they killed off for a reason? Did they die off for a reason? I also worry that somebody might uh, could reproduce something that would make another species extinct, like including humans. Um, there may be a benefit that we would have to be vigilant, monitor it, I believe. And also a species could have a disease that would affect other animals, including humans. So that, these are some concerns, uh, you know. Well, you know, I, I do like the idea, you know, those are the concerns that you raise are some of the concerns that have drawn the ire of some conservation researchers. They've suggested that spending big money and we're talking millions of dollars here, some cases, tens, tens of millions, even maybe a hundred million spending this kind of money on bringing animals back from the dead could actually result in a loss of biodiversity, because who's to say that if there's all these Tasmanian tigers running around, they're not going to eat all of some other creature. And again, I don't know how many humans were eaten by Tasmanian tigers. But yes, to your point, including humans, uh, that's uh, those are all real concerns. Uh, Tommy, thanks. Oh, I didn't know if you had another comment there. The argument against bringing species back is that there's a significant cost involved in maintaining these populations. Now, uh, for Andrew Pask, this fella at the University of Melbourne, the Tasmanian tiger is a special case with obvious benefits. In his view, the environment that it lived in 90 years ago hasn't changed it all that much, and it was the apex predator of its time. You could slot it back into that environment and immediately see benefits. He says that it wouldn't be as simple as just breeding and dropping off baby tigers it's a project that would require a lot of monitoring and maintenance. So it's hard to predict what's going to happen here. You never know what's going to happen. You bring a new animal into an ecosystem. What do you say? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I got an email here from Neil on Staten Island who writes of Molly's birthday. Frank, for her birthday, let her order something to eat. And let me know how much it was. I'll mail you a reimbursement check. That's awfully nice. But then the next words are pretty interesting as well. $25 maximum. Now, what does that mean? So that means if Molly chooses to order something and it's only $26 and then it's up to me to pay for the $26, I only get $25 reimbursed. So Neil's nice gift to Molly in the hypothetical scenario that I just laid out, is now costing me a dollar. So, I mean, thanks, Neil. Thanks, Neil. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you want to celebrate Molly's birthday, but you're now asking me to go to the inconvenience of um, 
of paying for this, number one, and risking, again, dipping below the amount of money I have in my checking account, then waiting for your check, going to the bank, can't, depositing my check, and I'm I'm capped at $25. So if she goes over that $25 Neil number, I have to then go into my pocket myself. Now, I'll do something nice for Molly. I'm not sure what it is. But I can't help but think whatever I do for Molly, it's not going to involve a chore for someone else like your gift for her is, Neil. I know what I want, Frank. Do you? Yeah. Well, uh, this has nothing to do with you, Molly. Uh, okay, never mind. Um, what do you want? I want a Tasmanian tiger. Oh, there you have it. Well, I, that's out of they're, my They're budget. pretty cute. That's out of my budget. We're pretty cute. Somebody uh, that is considered enough to be willing to spend up to $25 on a meal for Molly because there are so, so many great options for dining in Midtown at 314 in the morning is Neil from Staten Island, who happens to be on the line right now. Hello, Neil. Gee, Frank, uh, I feel bad. You know what, Frank? Let's make it $26. All right. Okay, now we're talking. I don't know what she wants, Frank. I mean, I don't want her to go into Peter Luger's. You know what I mean? Uh, but, but that's the thing, though, Neil, is it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Peter Luger's isn't open right now. Well, that's that's it. That's in, in my benefit, Frank. Wouldn't <laughs> exactly, but wouldn't the the thing? Wouldn't like a, a a more sensible approach be to tell Molly, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna Venmo you thirty dollars if you want to buy something to to eat. That's great. Or if you want to, you know, use it for something that you want to spend. That's great too. Or maybe just mail her a a gift card to a, a restaurant nearby. Well, I could do that. I mean, I said Gabby something. I don't see why I can't say Molly well, something. Exactly. Well, I do because you've got me doing your legwork for you. Well, I, I could always zell you the money, Frank, so you don't have to go to the bank. But, right, but well, again, what I'm suggesting is why why not just cut out the middleman and and Venmo or PayPal or whatever Zelle, you know, Cash App, whatever, write to Molly rather than have me be the the middle person here. All right, so just, uh, I'm still waiting for that reimbursement for that for that Rayo's drink from Imran yesterday. Is that from me? I never no, well, that. no, that's an Imran situation. Believe me. Uh, well, listen, I'm, I'm more. I, I would certainly be more than happy to uh, get Molly a meal. I mean, for her birthday. Wonderful. Uh, yes. No. She's uh, she's counting on that. She's counting anyway, on what that. I what I what I actually called for. I wanted to tell you the story. Well, you mentioned the the drill bit on Mars. Uh, in the 70s, I worked for the Parks Department in the Construction Division. One of the guys there was a mechanical engineer for Groman, and they were building the Apollo module at that time. So he said that when they built that module, they were very, very careful. Uh, if they drill a hole, they had one guy there holding a vacuum cleaner to suck up all the all the uh, uh, the burrs uh, and, and the metal shavings because you can't have anything falling around in space. Mm. And another guy with a, with a clipboard, he would check off everything, everything was done when it was all cleaned up. So when they finally finished the, the, the module, uh, they were all ecstatic. And then one guy said, you know what? Uh, just for the heck of it, let's turn it upside down. So they turned it upside down. This guy tells me, he says, Neil, he says, screwdrivers, wrenches, nuts and bulbs, garbage, everything was flying around <laughs> when they turned it upside down. So when you say a, a drill bit was left on Mars, uh, I'm not surprised. No, neither am I. Look, that's what happens. You go into space, there's going to be some stuff that falls out. That's for sure. 800-848-9222. Diane is in Brooklyn. Hello, Diane. Hi. You were just talking about CRISPRs, right? Yes. Okay. I'm totally against this technology, and I'll tell you why. 
even if you have a, you know, you make a nice little uh, woolly mammoth or whatever, humans being humans and human nature being human nature, they're going to do it. They're going to start fooling around with humans, and eventually it will, you know, forget about it. It'll be like Brave New World. It, 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 I, I don't like the idea that people can play God with this, and they will. They will. <laughs> you know, and and some idiot will make a dinosaur, and God knows what. You know, it will go crazy. So because of human, you know, human nature, I'm against it. Well, um, I, I find it tough to to disagree with anything that you said uh, there. But um, what about the possibility that I raised that maybe humans helped cause the extinction of one of these species and maybe we have an obligation to try and bring them back? Please. I mean, are we going to bring back the dead? Let's say somebody was murdered. Are we going to bring them back? I mean, this is a ridiculous argument. The thing of it is, sooner or later, it's going to be used for war. It's going to be used for something bad. It's going to be used to control humans, to make some kind of subordinate human that's like, a, like say, a, a part gorilla and part human so that you'll have a worker class that won't complain. I'm telling you, I'm against all of this. Well, look, uh, Diane, I tend to lean with you, um, and, and good points all. I mean, you think about what happened on Star Trek with the eugenics wars. Remember, there were all these experiments in the 1990s over, um, you know, g- genetic engineering. And they created this group of genetically engineered supermen who came to power simultaneously in a whole bunch of different countries all at the same time, and they would feud with one another. And then ultimately a lot of them were shipped off to space on a sleeper ship, the, uh, uh, I think, you know, the Botany Bay, and only to create, stir up trouble in the 23rd century. But uh, look, as great as Ricardo Montalban was as Kanunian Singh in both the original Star Trek series and in Star Trek II, do we really want to create a, a situation where, you know, where all these genetically engineered supermen are running around? Probably not. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Um, so uh, I'm, I believe in a higher power. Wouldn't say I'm religious. Uh, I believe in evolution. And I also believe in um, intelligent design. So there is a higher power, or God will you, whatever you want to call it, call him, her, and they were to give us this ability to do this cloning or however it is to bring this extinct animal back, then we're not playing them, right? We're not playing the God or whatever name you go by because they have given us that ability or they're testing us see how we do with it so you're saying that if science is able to do this then they should be no there should be no hesitation about moving forward with this not not as far as religious wise as in we're playing god all right well let's put let's put aside let's put aside, let's put aside religion let's deal with policy and ethics right um 
If right. you were on the board of trustees at the University of Melbourne, if you were the chancellor of the University of Melbourne, would you be saying to this group that wants to bring back the Tasmanian Tiger, go right ahead, or would you be saying, no, don't do it, it's not right, we shouldn't do it? I would say if it's cost-effective and we believe that humans have caused their extinction, then I would say go for it. Go for it. Okay. All right. Uh, Corey is not afraid of genetically engineered supermen like... We saw the trouble that he caused when he hijacked the USS Reliant, put those worm-eating things in Chekhov's ear and in Captain Terrell's ear. It was not a pretty picture. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Um, as for the Tasmanian tiger, yeah, why not? We we caused their extinction. We hunted them to extinction. And wouldn't you like to see one in the zoo? I would. You know, and you heard Molly. Look, she's using her birthday wish. She could have wished for anything. Uh, she could have, uh, you know, wished for, you know, any any number of things. And I, I got a little quick question. Sure, go ahead. Paul, from the way I texted you, was that Paul Gambino? Yes, it was. Yes, totally. Can I say something? As long as it's Paul. safe for radio, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Paul, you're in the truck. Get back to work. That, that's it. Well said, Tommy. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. Uh, Sarah is calling us from the Cheese State in Wisconsin. I actually have a friend named Sarah who celebrated her birthday yesterday. That was not you, was it, Sarah? No, no, no. I don't celebrate them anymore. Ah, but, yes. I, you, you and know, me both. I want to start by saying, Frank, I love you. But I'm going to give you a a teachable moment, okay? Oh you do very few things that irritate me, but one thing that stood out to me was you calling four of your your busiest friends and all of your women friends are interesting and very busy and wanting them to make cookies for you to give to Rita Cosby for her birthday. And you were just incensed that none of them could take the time out to make homemade cookies for Rita Cosby's birthday so you could give them to her. And you're giving this man a hard time about having to chip in a dollar for Molly's present? Well, you got to be kidding. Well, and wow. then you do a pylon about <laughs> a week later and say to them, as you uh, encounter them, can't believe I just asked you to do this. Now, these women have jobs and children and no attachment, really, to Rita Cosby like you must. But I just thought, listen, you twit. This is something you should know. Well, look, I, I will tell you, Sarah, uh, guilty as charged. And uh, as the French philosopher Francois de la Rochefort said uh, 300 years ago, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. So, uh, look, I have no defense on this one, Sarah. I am openly hypocritical. And, um, you know, this is a byproduct of my narcissism, which is becoming a greater and greater problem the higher our ratings get. So uh, I could be just getting too, too big for my wow, bri wow, britches. Wow. Evelyn is in Manhattan. Hello, Evelyn. Evelyn. Uh, Evelyn has other priorities. Hello. Okay. 800-848-9222. Uh, Carol in New Jersey has been patiently holding. Hello, Carol. Oh, hi there, Frank. How are you? You know, 
I, 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 that thing with Wheel of Fortune was so exasperating. It's ridiculous. I mean, look at that woman's problem. <laughs> I mean, she's an educator. And and she didn't know the answer. Well, exactly, answer. Carol. That's what was so frustrating, and that's why my wife refused to allow, um, you know, our son to continue to watch it because she didn't want him exposed to that kind of stupidity. I agree with you. Uh, it's very, very, very frustrating. Even more frustrating that we didn't have the the audio of that. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Oh, hey, Frank. Uh, can we send uh, Molly the? Girl Scout cookies that we've stockpiled from her early report. <laughs> earlier, I have a bunch of them, and uh, I don't. I don't want them to go stale. We can send them down to the PO box one one seven seven seven, right? Uh, I believe that's it. Yes. Okay, good. So I'm going to put them in the right place. But I would immediately like to hear. You know, you have Molly or Matt have an hour on the air with you once a week or, you know, as a birthday present. Matt doesn't seem to have a problem getting on the air, but I think it would be good to, you know, manage the, the, the crowd better. You had Chad Lopez. But I would like to say something about the remoting, the outsourcing of these jobs, the remote jobs. Sure, be my guest. Go ahead. It's going to save employers money. It reduces worker solidarity. So, of course, capitalism will result in the offshoring and outsourcing of remote jobs, and workers will be cutting their own throats, just like the deindustrialization of the United States for the last 40 years. This is the false consciousness that, that capitalism does. It gets workers to do things against their own interests. This war in Ukraine is going to raise the gases here. And, Frank, I want to remind you, this COVID-19 came from gene editing, okay? That's what's going on. The gene editing brought us COVID-19. Scientists can't be trusted. And I just hope everyone gives up the mask for Lent because they are so attached to it. something they really like. Uh, fair enough. Thank you, Russ. Mary is in Queens. Hello, Mary. Yes. Hi. How are you? Uh, I have. Seven out of ten. I wanted... <laughs> okay. If you open an account in Capital One and you qualify for a direct deposit, they will give you your check two days in advance. Oh, really? Oh, that's yes. interesting. Yes. Well, you know, that is a concern, though, because if I got my check two days in advance, I would spend it two days in advance. Well, the next one would come two days in advance also. Yeah, well, uh, that's a good point. That's a good point. I do actually have a Capital One account, and thanks for the heads up there, Mary, because I had an ING Direct account because there was a time. Do you remember something called interest? You remember years ago uh, when I was a child, there was this theory. It's very obscure these days, and only the oldest economists are even familiar with this concept. But if you'd go to a bank and you gave them your money to lend out to other people, they would pay you with something called interest. It was the wildest thing. It actually rewarded things like saving, and borrowers were winners, banks were winners, and, of course, savers were winners. Now, interest is something that we haven't seen in many, many years, at least for when it comes to savers. But I there was, um, there was a bank, an online bank. It was called ING Direct. Uh, it, was, it had these orange savings accounts. And they had these souped-up um, savings accounts that would pay people very high interest rates. Very high. I mean, like, I don't know, 4%. Now, these days, forget about it. You won't see 4%. In, in 20 years of, of keeping your money in the bank. But um, 
Capital One bought ING Direct. So I don't have any money in that account. Maybe it's like 30 cents left in it. But I do have um, a bank account with Capital One. So who knows? Maybe I will look at that. And uh, that it's a callback to a previous discussion. Hey, a fellow that knows a thing or two about business and money is John Boyd. He's a principal at the Boyd Company and a, a thought leader and pioneer in the era of corporate site selection. Well, we're turning our sights to Atlantic City next. Find out where Atlantic City is going in terms of uh, some of the projects beyond gambling these days. What that means for the economy of Atlantic City and South Jersey. What it means for the economy of the whole region and the country. And what other cities could learn from the things that Atlantic City is doing well and the things they're doing not so well. This is The Other Side of Midnight, the AC Report. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The AC Report. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on a promenade. And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies, someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty And meet me tonight in Atlantic City This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, We enjoy talking about Atlantic City. And Atlantic City is a fascinating city to watch. I don't think there's ever been a city that has done more things right and more things wrong when it comes to public policy, when it comes to the economy, and when it comes to city management. I mean, you talk about a city that has run the gamut of good decisions and poor decisions and the very real-world impact that those decisions have had on their residents and those people like me that like to visit Atlantic City occasionally. Atlantic City is a textbook case in studying economics and a variety of other things. A guy that uh, knows a thing or two about business, money, the economy, and a wide variety of subjects is John Boyd. He's a principal at the Boyd Company and a thought leader and a pioneer in the era of corporate site selection. John, thanks so much for getting up early with us. Hey, Frank, good morning. It's great to be with you. John, if people aren't familiar with the Boyd Company and the idea of corporate site selection, what what do you guys do over there? What's the Boyd Company? We counsel major corporations and developers where to locate new projects. And we've been especially active in gambling markets uh, like Las Vegas and Reno and, and, and Lake Tahoe over the years. So much uh, has been made about individuals and business moving from places like New York and New Jersey to Florida. And I'm curious, I, I think your company has moved its main offices to Florida as well. Um, what made you do that? What was the, the straw that broke the camel's back moving out of New Jersey to Florida? 
Well, Frank, you're right. I mean, one of the major themes in our economy has been the massive migration of people, businesses, and wealth from higher tax, higher cost of living states uh, like New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Illinois, and California to lower cost states like Texas and Florida. Uh, I, I still spend a great deal of time in New Jersey, but we're, you're right, we're, we're now based full-time in South Florida. And, and South Florida really is on, on a roll when it comes to new development and attracting people. Three, uh, over, over a thousand people a day move, move to Florida. Uh, and that's because of the you know, pro-business tax climate, the lack of a personal income tax, also lifestyle advantages. I think also Florida, by and large, staying open during the, 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 the pandemic sort of gave a, a sense of uh, certainty to, to business and to job creators. So um, and in our business, um, uh, in the development world, this is uh, certainly a great place to be. Mm. Uh, no, I, I can imagine. And it uh, sounds like you're not alone. Now, I know you, you said you spend a lot of time in New Jersey as well, and uh, you still have a place up here in the neighboring town to Atlantic City of Margate. Now, for people that aren't familiar with Margate, either people that go to Atlantic City regularly or people that don't, describe Margate for folks. Uh, It's uh, right next to Atlantic City, but in some ways it's a world of difference culturally. Uh, What's Margate, New Jersey, like? People probably think of Lucy the Elephant as sort of, uh, you know, iconic uh, landmark in Margate. It's a family orientated, family friendly community, uh, and, I, and I love Margate. It's uh, you know roughly 15 minutes from Atlantic City, and it's it's been a, a major recipient of the out migration trend, out particularly out of Philadelphia, over the past several years. Yeah, and uh, it's definitely a, a city that's worth 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 visiting, if for no other reason than uh, to see Lucy the Elephant. Um, it's a very, very special town. Some good great, restaurants great, over great there, Great restaurants, too. too. Johnny's Cafe on Ventnor Ave is one of my favorites. Uh, Greenhouse Cafe. Thin Crust Pizza. It's tough. All the people from New York and New Jersey and South Florida, it's still very difficult to find a good pizza down here. Yeah. Uh, the, why is that, by the way? They always talk about the water being different. I, that's, that's hard to believe that that's, there's, there's much validity to that, but that's that, – Tends to be the reason people explain why you can't get a, a, a real good bagel or thin crust pizza in Florida. Mm. Uh, well, it's uh, I, I'm he- I'm hearing that there are more and more places that are opening decent uh, pizza up there, but we'll have to uh, we'll we'll wait for you to give us yeah, a report it's, it's, on the it's pizza. It's starting to change. It's it's getting better. All right, well, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. Now, um, Atlantic City is an interesting place, and I feel like every discussion that I have with Atlantic City, whether it's with a politician. A gambler, a resident, a uh, tourist, a restaurateur, or just somebody that studies this stuff from a distance, it, almost every conversation ends up the same way, which is they used to, they say at some point, well, Atlantic City's not as good as it used to be. Now, let me ask you, John, as a guy that studied this stuff, have we tended to romanticize Atlantic City's past? Was Atlantic City ever as great as people always seem to think that it once was? Sure. I mean, Atlantic City was really a, a global destination for families and for tourism. Uh, no question about it, Frank. There's been a, a number of false starts, mismanagement, and a lack of effective leadership uh, over the years. Uh, we all we all know that, but there are a number of projects in the pipeline to get excited about. 
And from 30,000 feet, here's a big picture point that I think is important to keep in mind. This is a fundamentally different economic landscape versus a decade or so ago when AC was in full throttle decline. Atlantic City, Atlantic City now has the benefit of growing sports gaming revenue, the upgraded bond rating due to, to cost controls, much of that related to state oversight. The contraction down to seven casinos has made the city more competitive versus neighboring states that have gambling. And new investments by Stockton College, the new offshore wind farm, that's going to be the largest wind farm uh, in, in, in the U.S., are going to create new economic development opportunities. So as a fellow that advises corporations on where to locate and where to do business, are, would you be bullish about Atlantic City's future, keeping in mind everything that you said about the the comeback efforts, the projects that are in the pipeline, and knowing the, the economic climate that's going on in New Jersey, do you think Atlantic City is going to have brighter days ahead? Well, there's certainly challenges. This is a very difficult macroeconomic uh, climate right now. And Atlantic City is behind in the curve with respect to diversifying its economy versus other major gambling markets. The city needs to become more proactive on economic development. But, but all of that said, this is a, 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 in some way, you know, Atlantic City has really benefited from the out-migration of people from New York and Philadelphia during the pandemic. Okay, Monmouth County, Ocean County, and Atlantic counties are attracting more full-time and younger residents, the type of people that not just want to play slot machines, but attend major concerts and sporting events, go out for dinner, drinks, spend money on retail. So there's a new wealth and human capital realignment that should help Atlantic City as the city works to become you know, more year-round and a mixed-use Vegas-like destination. I think when you see what Deem Development has proposed for Baderfield and what Bart Blatstein is doing with Showboat, I mean, those are experienced, well-regarded developers that see this demographic uh, data trends, and they see promise. Last year, if people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, John Boyd. He's with the the Boyd Company. If uh, if you're a business and you're looking for some advice on uh, where you should locate I think you should uh, strongly consider consulting with the Boyd Company. Check out their website, theboydcompany.com, to get a broader sense of some of the things that uh, that they do. And I- I'm curious, John, last year was a banner year in the history of casino gaming. It was it, more people uh, spent money in a casino last year than in the entire history of the United States. Now, obviously – Atlantic City has to deal with increased competition from places like uh, Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, just about everywhere. Given, though, the fact that gaming seems to be trending upwards, do you still think that Atlantic City should be prioritizing diversifying its economy as opposed to double down, doubling down on gaming? Well, the, the, the gaming industry has synergies with other Industries like like technology. So we see, you know, esports and and state investments in the new esports complex. Stockton is set to be a national leader in the growing video game development industry. You have the new state film tax credits. New Jersey positioned to be a leader in multimedia. So it, it's it's not one or the other. It's leveraging the gaming industry 
It's leveraging Atlantic City's hospitality infrastructure to you know, become a, a, a tech center of excellence. I mean, all of this is, is doable. It, it really takes leadership. It takes promotion. It, it takes corporate prospecting. And again, Atlantic City really be behind the curve versus markets like Reno and Las Vegas. But there's a precedent for all of this. And given some of these newer trends related to work from home, the demographic shifts to the Jersey Shore, uh, this is really uh, an exciting time with, with a lot of potential. You uh, alluded to the Bart Blatstein plan for a water park at Showboat and the uh, proposed redevelopment of uh, Bader Field. Those are a couple of the projects mentioned in this uh, Philadelphia Inquirer piece by Amy Rosenberg, in which she goes through a whole bunch of projects that are in the offing for Atlantic City that have nothing to do uh, with gambling. Do you think what is going to be the key to determining which of these projects? are successful, not only economically, but in terms of actually coming to fruition, because we've seen so many projects right. uh, not even get off the ground in spite of the best laid plans of mice and men. Well, you're right. I mean, we've seen a number of, of, of false starts, broken promises, failed efforts. But I think I think the the, the idea of, of the Bader Field redevelopment, to me, is, is especially especially exciting. That site is one of the most attractive coastline sites in the, in the, in the entire U.S. today. And so many projects given, so many projects now are site-driven given the lack of inventory. Uh, so some of these other demographic trends, the, the idea of becoming, you know, a, a Formula One racing niche, I think is timely. Economic development is all about timing. And Formula One is a growing sport in the U.S. that, that, Ticket to the Miami Grand Prix is expected to be one of the hottest tickets in town uh, this year. So that that project remind, and I, I think you're pretty familiar with with Las Vegas, Frank. The, sure. the the idea of leveraging Formula One racing reminds me of the South Point Casino in the south the south end of the Las Vegas Strip, which has become a global equestrian center. And there's a lot of similarities between the equestrian. And the Formula One industry, it appeals to international tourists and it appeals to you know, wealthy individuals, high net worth individuals, precisely the type of demographic that Atlantic City wants mm. to target. So I think that that is a big opportunity. Again, it comes down to leadership. It comes down to promotion, the type of activity you'd see in Oscar Goodman or his wife, the current mayor in Las Vegas do. Of course, he has local ties to the, the AC uh, the AC region. So this will be uh, it's showtime for for Mayor Small to go out and, and, and to make the case. And uh, Oscar Goodman is a good friend of mine. He's been a guest on this show many times. So I, I totally uh, relate to your referencing him and and his wife's leadership in Las Vegas and them being such great spokespeople and great cheerleaders for Las Vegas. You have mentioned a couple of times what Vegas has done, what Reno has done. Whenever I've known people, whether they're casino industry people or restaurateurs or others that have worked in Vegas and then they come out to Atlantic City, they have a long list of things that Atlantic City could be doing that Vegas does. And they point out that that really ends up uh, having Atlantic City come up at the short end of the stick. Now, you've pointed to a failure of leadership a couple of times in our conversation. What 
could Atlantic City be doing to attract more of the kinds of business that Las Vegas is enjoying right now? I think success breeds success. And there's just a winning culture in the Las Vegas hospitality industry. I mean, you can't see bellboys in Las Vegas hand you your, your, their business cards when you, when you pull up. And they take pride in the city uh, thriving. So there's an upward mobility that even entry-level people in the Las Vegas hospitality industry tend to have. There's a pride associated with being associated with the Las Vegas market. So that takes time to build. You know, success breeds success. And, you know, having this new Blatstein indoor water park, the largest proposed indoor water park in the U.S., having that be, be a success, uh, having Bader Field be redeveloped. Finally, it's been vacant since 2008, aside from the you know different pop-up concerts. But that, that just will, will begin creating momentum. Our owner, John Katsimatidis, as you're aware, is developing – a uh, major project in St. Petersburg, Florida. For people like him who have business interests in places like New York and Florida, what would you advise them about doing business and developing pr- a project in a place like Atlantic City? And what advice would you give to Atlantic City in terms of attracting uh, developers that have a track record of success like John Katsimatidis? Well, uh John Casamitidi's new new project in, in St. Pete is a very very exciting one. It's going to be the largest tower on the Gulf Coast. It's getting a lot of a lot of uh, interest and excitement. As you know, Frank, Florida, the sixth borough of, of Manhattan. Okay, so that's a timely and exciting project. He's the type of developer that you know has experience in, in a market. Look what he's done in Coney Island. Oh yeah, right. Uh, so you know, developers see opportunity and and they go for it and it really involves uh, uh, leadership confidence in the in the local leadership i think we are beginning to see some positive fundamental changes okay this steady stream of new sports gaming revenue i think is is a game changer the the presence now of a, of a downtown stockton campus which will be an economic engine that atlantic city uh, has never had before. Okay, a viable, nationally respected uh, state college. The offshore wind farm, 1.6 billion dollar offshore wind farm, which will be a catalyst for other types of tech and energy energy security investments. And New Jersey's big multimedia industry. That that new incentive. It's among the most powerful incentives in the nation for new film and multimedia in, in industry. All of that is going to create opportunities for smart developers to do projects in Atlantic City. And lastly, uh, John, and again, we're talking with John Boyd of uh, The Boyd Company. You can check out their website, theboydcompany.com. We have a lot of listeners uh, in South Jersey, but we also have a lot of listeners in North Jersey and in, uh, in, in Central Jersey, which some people question whether or not Central Jersey even exists. Does Atlantic City um, matter to them? Should they care at all? about what's going on in Atlantic City. Are there broader implications for the rest of the state, maybe even the rest of the region, if Atlantic City and its economy craters? Of course. If you're a New Jersey taxpayer, having a, a viable, a successful Atlantic City is, 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 in, your, is in your interest. Uh, as you know, the, the state has been, uh, you know, with, with their oversight over Atlantic City, sharing more of a, of a, of a burden 
to, 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 to get Atlantic City's fiscal house in order. And Atlantic City has the potential to be a major economic engine for the state and, and provide hospitality and lifestyle amenities attractive to corporations located in different parts of the state. Okay, if you're a, a life sciences firm or, or a fintech firm considering a site in central and northern New Jersey, part of the calculus will be business conventions or corporate training events or team building events just two hours south at Brigada or Hard Rock. Okay, dinner at Angeloni's, my, my, my favorite restaurant. Is that that was my uh, next question? Where, which one is your favorite? So, Mama Angeloni's Angeloni. too. Angeloni's okay, You got to say, you got to say, Alan, Alan Angeloni, one of the, one of the best in the business. Well, hopefully, I'll see you down there one of these days. We'll share a uh, a plate of pasta at Angeloni's. I look forward to it, Frank. John Boyd, uh, The Boyd Company. Check them out online, theboydcompany.com. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. WABC. The views and opinions expressed by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of WABC Radio, its management, or its sponsors. You see what inflation is doing. You see what the stock market is doing. I have a contingency plan that's going to keep your money secure as prices keep rising. The dollar lost a ton of value. Inflation rose by almost 7%. In 30 days, your dollar became worth 90 Inflation is not slowing down. It's escalating. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and can protect your family's wealth. Legacy Precious Metals is the company that I trust for investing in gold and silver. You have to take this seriously. You can trust Legacy Precious Metals because they give you unbiased counsel based on your individual situation. Speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866 932-0635, or you can download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. If you do that, be sure to tell them you heard about it from me, Frank Moreno. Listen to Rudy Giuliani every weekday at 3.55 p.m. for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Mayor's final thoughts. Rudy gives his insightful, most candid, and important final thought of the day on topics affecting our community, our nation, and you. The mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Mayor's final thoughts. Weekdays at 3.55 p.m. on 77 WABC. Great Perry Como. Hello, young lovers. So 
When I came home yesterday, my wife was very frustrated because our son didn't sleep the whole night. Uh, she, he wouldn't sleep for more than an hour at a time. And, he, you know, he'd be in very good spirits, but he would just be up making noise. So I, um, you know, I looked after him and he didn't really sleep with me either. He stayed up and he'd cry. He wanted to be fed, wanted to be changed, whatever the case may be. So he was pretty tired the whole day yesterday. And my wife and my sister were, you know, my sister was over, Claudia, and they put him to bed around 8 p.m. last night. Went right to bed. He'd make a noise. They'd leave him alone and went right to bed. So I just get this message about 14 minutes ago from my wife. She said, I may have screwed myself by putting Carmine to bed at 8 p.m. He's wide awake, sitting in his bouncer, listening to you. So big shout out to my son, Carmine, who's listening. Son, I love you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, But. Please go go to bed and don't give your mother a hard time. So he's uh, just over three months old now. And everybody says uh, once they hit the four-month mark, that's when you could do something called sleep training where you just essentially leave them alone and let them cry themselves out, even if they're crying. They said you're not supposed to do that before four months. So I think at least I'm looking forward to that. Now, I'm looking forward to it on the one hand. Because we won't have to pick him up constantly, but I'm not looking forward to hear him, hearing him scream and cry. I get really upset when, um, you know, I see him screaming and, and crying with real tears, especially. Bernard McGurk said to me a while ago, and I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, but he said to me a while ago, you know, you'll find out one day. This is before I had a child. He said, you'll find out one day, Frank, that you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And I have certainly, even though I only have one child, I've certainly found that to be the case. 800-848-9222. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. Here you get me right away. Okay. Um, I I feel... Um, How's that for that arrogance, is- Howard? I knew you, you knew I'd get you right away. How did you know? Because I, I just felt it in my in my bones. I like it. You know, well, you know what? Let me tell people, if they ever want to be called upon right away, the reason I'm going to Howard right away is because he's on topic. He's topical. He's not calling in to talk about something I brought up three weeks ago or something that I didn't bring up at all. He's calling to talk about what we just talked about, which is a key hallmark in getting on right away. Please, the floor is yours, Howard. I feel that not everybody's life is is gambling. I feel some people are more into museums, mountains. What I like about New York, I mean, I hope it goes into fruition, is that it's close to everything. It's close to the Culinary Institute. It's close to the mountains. It's got central transportation. You can do a lot. You can go to museums. But not everybody's into that gambling. And I don't know if John Casamitinius is into that. I'm reading a book by Danny Myers. Setting the, it's called Setting the Table. And the, one of the things he emphasizes is that you have to have your heart into the project. I realize he wants to develop, he, like he wanted to develop a baseball team. That's the type of thing he likes. But I don't, I don't see him as a gambling man. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, he's a billionaire, right? So all his gambles have paid off. He doesn't really need to spend a lot of time at the poker table trying to win a few bucks. But uh, in his younger days, uh, thank you, Howard. And I, maybe I'll invite John for a future Atlantic City segment. Um, to share when he used to go to Atlantic City. But in his younger days, he would fly to Atlantic City himself because John's a pilot as well. He doesn't 
fly anymore. I think Margot grounded him. And he would play blackjack for a few hours and try to win enough uh, at blackjack to cover the cost of the fuel for the trip back. And it's kind of a fun little game. And I think he said like something like three quarters of the time he was good enough at blackjack that he would win enough to cover the cost of the fuel. So um, I, I'd like to bring John back to Atlantic City, not only because I think it would be fun to play blackjack with him, but I, I think there are a lot of spots in Atlantic City that he would like to develop. Those of you that are on hold, I will get to you in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, your influence, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So last night, my sister is over, and the three of us, my wife, my sister, and I are all chatting, and um, the subject of money comes up, right? And look, I'm sure those of us that are not super wealthy, we've all done this before, where we um, talk about what we would do if we ever had hundreds of millions of dollars, won the mega millions or the Powerball or we had a billion dollars all of a sudden. And the three of us are all talking about how we would spend this money. And uh, Claudia goes into what she would do. And uh, my wife essentially says that um, one of the things that she would do, in addition to helping out a lot of family and friends and paying off our house and doing things of that sort, buying second residence and so forth, one of the things that she would do is she'd like to stay in our house where it is now, but she'd like to form an animal sanctuary to take care of animals. And that would essentially become her full-time job is, is caring for and looking after this animal sanctuary. And uh, I talk about some of the things that I'd like to do if ever I had hundreds of millions of dollars. And I said one of the things that I would do is – run for governor of New York as an independent or third-party candidate. And in the process, just like Tom Golisano did, in the process of running for governor as a third-party candidate, helping to launch and create a new independent political movement in this state. And um, she basically said, my wife did, that whether I got elected or not, she would not move to Albany. And I said, uh, well, so she said, I'm just going to stay here in, in Staten Island and you're going to move to Albany. And I said, well, I'll still come down for the weekend and we'll spend the weekends together. And she said, well, so we're not going to see each other at all during the week? I said, I don't know. And then she thought, and she said, we're, we're going to be just one of these couples that basically lives apart. And uh, And then she said, well, look, I guess we don't spend – very much time together during the week anyway because of our opposite schedules, maybe it wouldn't be that different. And 
Then, you know, I started thinking about it. There are a lot of other couples that have experienced living apart and are happy. So in December, the Wall Street Journal magazine did a fascinating, fascinating piece. Headline, the secret to these successful marriages, question mark, living apart. And it chronicles how the number of married couples who live apart is small, but it's growing. And here's how they say the arrangement helps their families and their relationships. And it goes through all these different couples that live apart. Um, You know, um, one couple has one person in Virginia, another person in Oregon. And they go down the line. And these are all couples that say this works for them. And I'm reminded of a couple of things. One, um, the owner of the Strand bookstore, she lives here in New York. Her husband is a senator from Oregon. So he lives most of the year in Oregon or Washington, D.C. So they basically live apart. My friend, my hero, Joe Franklin, who we're going to be doing a big show next week in honor of his birthday. Um, Joe Franklin, for the last 40 years of his wife Lois's life, she lived in Florida. He lived in New York. He said, they've never been happier. I had dinner with an old friend of mine last week, maybe the week before. And this is somebody I hadn't seen in a few years. It seems like we haven't seen a whole bunch of people in a few years with the pandemic. But we're catching up, as friends do, on our families, our relationships. And, you know, it's good. You know, how's so-and-so? Yeah, it's good. How's so-and-so? Good, good, great. And then he's talking about his wife. And uh, he says, yeah, Ruth, that's his wife, Ruth lives in California with our, our son, Jeffrey. I said, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry if this is an indelicate question, but are you guys divorced or, or separated? And he said, no, we're married. And I said, what, you're married? And then he explains the circumstances as to why she's been living in California for the last two years during the pandemic. But apparently they're still happily married. So I'm curious, those of you that have been married and or divorced, do you think an arrangement like this can work where you have a husband and wife or a husband and a husband, wife and a wife living apart successfully? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And if it can work, what are the ingredients needed to make it work? 800-848-WABC. Additionally, um, if you think it doesn't work, I'd love to hear that too. You know what makes me nervous? See, for the second day in a row, our boss, Chad Lopez, is wandering in here at 4.08 in the morning. It's 4.08 in the morning. He's here. What is he doing here at 4.08? Now, I mean, he's making everybody nervous. That's what he's doing here. I don't need these people distracted, uh, you know, trying to look busy. I need them actually busy. Uh, Chad Lopez is here. Maybe we, And look, he's still dressed to the nines. He's all GQ'd out. So 800-848-WABC. <laughs> Mike 
is in Marlton, New Jersey. Mike, you know who lives in Marlton, New Jersey? Who's from Marlton, New Jersey? Quite a few people. Like, give me, give me a, a couple of your notable residents. John Runyon was one. Well, he was a congressman here. I mean, you know, but quite a few people. But I, you know, you tell me. Well, so Jody McDonald, the old sports talk show yeah, host, Jody is from Marlton. Oh, yeah. yeah. So. Well, I quit watching sports a little while ago. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I followed. I've been listening to sports radio for 100 years, so, yeah. All right. Well, good. You must be very, very pleased, very honored to have somebody like Jody Mack. All right. What's on your mind today, Mr. Mike? Well, I, I just called to refute 99.9% of your last salesman was talking about. Well, tell me, the, tell me the point 0.1% that you agree with. Okay. Not much. So I, I, that I'm going to have to figure out. <laughs> okay. Sadly and unfortunately, I go to casino about eight days a week. In Atlantic City or elsewhere? No, no, no. Even though I'm from South Jersey. Where do you go? I was at the parks today. Oh, oh okay, in Pennsylvania. Probably 50% of the people from New Jersey go right across the bridge. Here's my question to you because you're a lot more educated. I'm just a dumb retired sergeant major. Let me ask you this. Are monopolies illegal, yes or no? Uh, first of all, thanks for your service. Yes, they are usually illegal, but there are exceptions. Okay. Like baseball, for instance, is a monopoly. They have an antitrust exemption. Okay. So let me ask you this question. I'm ready. Every state that has gambling, to include Pennsylvania, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, promoting Pennsylvania because they have slot machines in the 7-Elevens now. Why is New Jersey... And you're the, um, thank you for giving me this platform because I've been wondering, and I, I write uh, op-eds for the second largest newspaper in New Jersey. I've had oh. over 100 articles since I retired. You, you're apolitical, unlike General Milley, when you're in the Army. So once I retired, I was able to bloviate and things of that nature. So what up, here's my question. Why is Atlantic City the only place where you can have casino gambling? Now, I understand back in, in New Jersey, 70s, you mean. In New Jersey. Right? So well, I understand back in the 70s, they had a 30-year thing when we're going to promote – well, that was 30, 40 years. It's not like they did a great job with the corruption. I was in Atlantic City seven years ago when the mayor got, you know, the last popular. Yeah, Fra- Frank, really- Frank Gilliam. Yeah. Well, to answer your question, you know, yeah. so my, here's my question to you again. Right. Why is Atlantic City? Well, I'm about to answer it. Okay. okay yes, sir. So the, the reason is because when they passed the referendum in the 70s, that's what the voters voted for. Now, there have been a number of attempts to give North Jersey the same right uh, to have casinos. And the most recent example was back in uh, 2011, there was a a proposition on the ballot that will allow North Jersey casinos. The voters voted it down. Now, they are trying, and it looks like now they may be successful, they are trying to bring gambling to North Jersey again. So that Atlantic City East Coast gambling monopoly, well, not East Coast, but New Jersey gambling monopoly may soon end. Because here's my thing is, like, even though I'm from South Georgia and Marlton, it's easier for me to drive. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, I was there, sadly, like I said, unfortunately, all day today. Half the people are from New Because, you know, if you live in Atlanta County, you know, the coastal, you know, yeah, you'll go there or whatever, people there. But for the most part, people are not going to drive all the way down there to go down there to gamble. And this is, I mean, like you said, 30 years, I'm talking 70, so we're talking about 40 years, damn near 50 years. It's, I know it's all politics, and, and I give their politicians the credit. They put up all these crazy, nonsensical, but it's just wrong. All I'm saying is you should be able to 
whatever. Hey, fair whatever. enough, Mike. Fair enough. Uh, you can bet that's going to be an issue that we're going to be debating for some time uh, because I wouldn't be surprised if they try to put it on the ballot this year, actually. 800-848-WABC, uh, talking about couples, married couples, living apart. Is this something that you think can work? You know, it's funny. I knew someone that was a morning TV news anchor. And, it, and I know everyone's going to think it was Juliet Huddy. It was not Juliet Huddy. But she was a morning TV news anchor. And because she was a morning TV news anchor, she had to get up super early. And because she had to get up super early and her husband had more conventional hours, she and her husband ended up sleeping in separate bedrooms. And she said that this took an enormous toll on their relationship and they ended up getting divorced. Now, surely that was not the only cause of their separation, but she believes that that was a factor. What say you? Can it work having a couple, being in a couple, living separately from your spouse? Because Rachel and I are trying to plan for the inevitable day where we are, you know, multi, multi, multi millionaires. 800-848-WABC. Adrian is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Adrian. Hey, I think you absolutely can make it work, 100%. I know many couples, and even, I mean, I think the longer you've been married, the more likely it is it'll work. I think if you're newlyweds, it's probably rougher. But if you're, you've been married, you know, have a strong basis. I mean, even like my husband and I, for the last two years, you know, when COVID first broke out, his he has a had a very elderly mother. She was almost 100 in another state. And so, of course, you know, they were afraid to have her go to a nursing home. So he went to take care of her. And I thought, you know, I supported that. I'm like, you know, it's his mother, of course. you got you to right. do what Naturally. you got to do. Naturally. And so, I mean, for practically – and then he ended up getting many surgeries, and it was safer for him there because of all the crime here because he's a little bit older than me. So – and it's been great. You know, it keeps it fresh in a way. Because when you see him, you're excited. And, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I think it can work. And, and my um, someone else in my family, he just recently got a great job opportunity. He's going to be spending 10 days out of the month with his wife and the rest of the time in a different state because they won't let him telecommute, the, you know, 100% of the so time. Is, so is this ever the kind of thing that you would recommend to a couple? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, unless you're some insecure person, if you love the person, you trust each other, I mean, you know, you can you can cheat right under someone's nose. So it doesn't make... Well, no, 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 absolutely. I don't think it has anything to do with infidelity. You can live uh, uh, absolutely in the same, same house and uh, see each other 20 hours a day. It's that four hours that you don't see one another where yeah. the cheating can occur. I don't think yeah. it has anything to do with infidelity. I, I guess I'm concerned more about... Um, I don't know, missing out on opportunities to, say, have dinner with one another and share the the pitfalls and the highlights of your day, for instance, or uh, to do other shared activities like, um, you know, cozy up on a sofa and uh, watch a film or something. Well, how how cozy would it be if... All the while, while you're supposedly cozying up on the couch, you're thinking, oh, man, I really would love to be governor. I could have been governor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like... That's a good point. That's a good point, Adrian. Adrian. So what's your story in terms of a relationship right well, now? Well, 
uh, happily married, as far as I know. You have to ask him for his uh, <laughs> but twenty over twenty years. Do you so, and your husband live together? Over twenty years. Well, because the last two years, because of COVID, he's been mostly. In oh, okay. State. That's still going on. I didn't know if that issue had uh, had had. Well, then been he as soon as, as soon as he takes care of her, then he ends up getting like a series of surgeries and stuff. So he's been having health issues, and I felt it. Definitely wouldn't want him recuperating on the crime sure. rate in the streets of Manhattan. Understood. So, well, no, that's. I appreciate that perspective, Adrian. But I, I, I actually, you could, you could actually give a little help here. I don't know if you remember, but I think it was like months ago on your show, you were asking people to to, to give you uh, good, beautiful things about New York because you're trying to convince yep, yep. your sister. Well. Uh, this could this could be my situation because you know I'm a person that can't even imagine living outside of New York. Same. And but now you know my hu- <laughs> my husband's thinking well since it's so dangerous so you know he reads the headlines and he's thinking of that maybe to make a permanent move. Did did you ever convince her to stay or <laughs> was that was that? Uh, you know I don't know that I convinced her, but she's still here, and I think honestly the. Um, the having, um, uh, you know, a son that she's become very close to in a short amount of time, her first nephew, I think that has probably been a much greater factor in her sticking around than my persuasive arguments. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that my words about the living apart happily work because, you know, it's only been a you know, relatively small amount of time so far, but if there was supposed to be a permanent move, like, I don't, I, the, I, I would be. I miss. I miss New York. Just you know, one foot out of New York, and I get homesick. I'm like, when are we going uh, back? I, wow. I feel the the same <laughs> way, Adrian. And that's why. And thank you for the call. I really enjoy okay. talking to you whenever you call. Um, whenever there were for years where I would do whatever I could to not leave the five boroughs of New York City, and then. I don't know. I thought maybe I was shortchanging myself in terms of travel and other experiences. And a lot of other communities do have great things to offer. So I thought maybe, all right, I should try and travel a little bit more. But still, this is where my heart is. No question about it. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, listening to your topic, I've been working overnight for 15 years ever since we had our uh, two kids. My wife wanted to continue with her career working during the day. And I see her two hours a day. I'm, like I said, I don't sleep in bed with her because I'm working right now while she's sleeping. And I'm going to be honest with you, our relationship is actually better. Really? And, uh, you know, uh, we get along better. You know, we have our time alone. But as you see, once Carmine gets bigger, you're going to have less and less time to spend with your wife. And you know what I'm talking about? And... Um, it just works because daycare and putting our kids in aftercare would cost way too much money. So we decided that I would work nights and she would work days. And our our marriage has been strong and it's less fighting. Well, that's great. I'm happy to hear that. And uh, after listening to you and Adrian, I'm beginning – I'm convinced here on this one. Thank you, Joe. I am a little surprised. I got to say I would have thought – that there would be all sorts of people saying, no, of course this is not going to work, these separate marriages. But sure enough, where I, at least the first couple of folks that we've talked to so far are all echoing the same kind of thing that we hear in this Wall Street Journal piece. 
800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on a, a previous subject, you're welcome to as well. Nick is in Syracuse. Hello, Nick. Hey, Frank. I really like your show. Uh, tell your boss you got a flamethrower of a signal because I get you from Newburgh, New York, all the way up to Syracuse every night. And I've been Wonderful. The Great. That's what we like to um, hear. Yeah, I've, I've been married for 25 years, and I think it depends on the couple. And like the last caller, I uh, I work nights, too, as well, but I actually have more time during the day with my wife than I was working when I was working during days, you know. So uh, anyways, to get on, uh, the topic I called about was the genetics and the genetic testing. Um, it, it seems like I don't know if we're ever going to have a choice in that. I think there's a big push, uh, not not to get on the conspiracy thing like the the lady caller you had last night said she was worried about being called a conspiracy theorist, but there's nothing wrong with honest questioning. Um, and and this is something uh, like the World Economic Forum, Forum the transhumanism, and, and their push for that type of uh, genetic control um, and experimentation is really kind of scary if you look into it and read into it. And that's just something I wanted to bring up to some of the other callers. I don't think they realize what the science is doing out there and what they're looking into. Great. Um, so if people want to look into it, I think it's a real interesting topic. Great and, points uh, all, uh, Nick. Thank you very, very much. Appreciate that. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Coming up in a minute, we're going to play the $1,000 Minute. Uh, we are going to... Uh, bring back the contestant from yesterday because of some controversy that was involved in yesterday's program. I'll reiterate that in just a minute. But first, let me say hello to Kevin in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Frank. Great show as usual. Uh, but my point of view is the exact opposite. I'm I'm in the bread business. I own a bread route. And when I first started, the, the guy that was loaded next to me, the first thing he said to me, hey, kid, you married? And I said, no, I'm not. He goes, well, if you were, you wouldn't be for long. And I was like, you know, why is that? He goes, you think about it. You're out all night working. Your wife's home alone. She's sleeping alone. She's, you know, spending time alone. And the, 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 he's right. Divorce. I've been doing it 28 years now. And my wife hates it. She, we have a great marriage. Don't get me wrong. But she hates it because she's alone. We have right. a dog. Well, my, dog my wife does, too. Uh, my wife it's does, horrible. too. But on the other hand, she does say that the weekends that we get to spend together she does, I think, appreciate that time to, uh, together a bit more than uh, than she would if we were spending seven days a week together. Yes. I always say to my wife, because I feel bad, I always say, you know, jokingly, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So that's my answer to right. her every time. I mean, I, I have a good job. I make good money. So I say, look, in the future, we'll have all the time in the world together. We, You know, we got to make sacrifices now. But in, in my business, it's notorious. The divorce happens. It happens a lot. So, you know, oh, I can imagine. And I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. And, and thanks for sharing that, Kevin. And best of luck to you with your marriage and your in your business. But I am friendly with a lot of politicians and I've known a lot of politicians that have gotten divorced because of the amount of time that being a politician requires. And it, and, you know, I know people love to demonize politicians. I wish you could see the amount of time that some of these folks have to spend away from their families because and and do what they consider to be the people's business. And I think it would give you a greater appreciation and a greater respect for the sacrifices that they're making. Some of them never end up getting married, 
because of that. And others end up getting divorced because of that. And um, that's why I always try to be respectful of anyone that um, that's in politics because I know the sacrifices that these folks are making. And it's so tempting when you don't agree with someone to just go after them and demonize them and villainize them. When The truth is they're doing a public service. They are. Whether you agree with them or not, they're doing a public service and uh, at great personal cost to themselves and their families. So uh, I I really totally appreciate what Kevin's saying there. The $1,000 Minute and some discussion of what's happening in Ukraine straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Back in the Jeffy. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. The Hula Hoop song by Georgia Gibbs with Hugo Peretti. An instant classic from the moment it was recorded back in the 1950s. Well, it is time for us to try and give away $1,000 again. And this is a contest we do each and every day. Yesterday, this was a little controversial for two reasons. Uh, One is the... I kind of felt like the contestant was cheating when I asked the question, what's the capital of Russia? It sounded to me like he's like repeating the question out loud but so that someone else could hear it and saying, what's the capital of Russia? And then it sounded like you heard somebody yell back, Moscow! And he said, oh, Moscow, Moscow. So there's that. And then I asked a question, and this is a result of poor wording, and I'll take ownership of this. I asked the question, Name one star of the TV show Friends. Now, he didn't name a star. He named an actor. But what do you do in that case? Is he technically right? Well, he no. named the character. Right, he named the character. Not the actor, That's the what character. I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Right. But I didn't say name an actor. I said name a star. Could that character be a star? So it was a little, it was a little amorphous. Now, I, I would have slept fine if we didn't give him any money because he didn't have the questions answered within a minute. But I also felt something of a moral obligation to give him an opportunity to answer questions again because he got eight questions correct within within a minute, more or less. He didn't quite get that eighth question within the time allotted. But I thought, why don't we try and bring him back and see what happens? And it is once again time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. It is once again time for the $1,000 Minute, and let us say hello once again to Joseph in Massapequa. Hello, Joseph. Frank, good morning. How are you today? I'm great. So... Um, no trains nearby, I'm hoping. 
No, sir. I made sure I'm not going near them right now. All right. So uh, this is uh, this is not an opportunity that a lot of people get. So we we'll hope you you make the most of it. And now look, I appreciate it. Uh, I uh, the trick is a lot of times not getting nervous. I called in to another radio program um, and played at a trivia contest yesterday. And even I, as experienced as I am at doing this, I got a little nervous and I get flustered from time to time. So don't get nervous. Just think about the question for a second. And usually if the answer seems obvious, it it is. You ready to go? I'm ready when you are. All right. The timer will begin after I ask the first question. How many states are there? 50. Name one of the women who sat behind President Biden during the State of the Union. Nancy Pelosi. What Catholic holiday was yesterday? Ash Wednesday. What gas makes voices sound higher when inhaled? Helium. How many sides does a heptagon have? Seven. What East Harlem Italian restaurant did I dine at this week? Oh. It was an Italian restaurant. Um, I have, I, I don't know. I mentioned it earlier. Matt enjoyed the leftovers this morning. Yeah, I, that I don't know. I'm not going to lie to you. I oh, don't know right. Okay, the, the answer was Rayo's. Rayo's. Rayo's oh. in East Toronto. Um, well, you did well, Joseph. You got five correct, and, um, and I appreciate you being a sport, and I appreciate you being in an area with no trains, and I appreciate you listening. You seem like a great guy. So, Oh, I appreciate it. Hey, Frank, could I just put a shout-out to my wife, Desiree? Absolutely. Desiree, is she, she, is she named for that uh, Neil Diamond song? Actually, I think her mother named her after an old movie star. Um, she's been sick lately, Frank, not to get off any of your subjects or anything. Uh, and um, maybe between uh, – I know your well runs deep um, in the field you're in. My wife got sick after getting a vaccine. She had an adverse effect, having a lot of trouble trying to get her help to get her well. Um, they thought it was a stroke at first, and um, between going to three or four different neurologists after the hospital and uh, special, um, it's infectious disease doctor we went to. We went to a um, blood doctor, and um, everybody's just got their hands up in the air, and uh, they really don't know what to do for her, so, and she's in so, pretty bad shape. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That sounds tough. Uh, what are you, so what are you looking for? Are you looking for a doctor recommendation? Yeah, I thought maybe between your colleagues or, you know, the listeners or somebody might have, um, you know, a route to go down. We're kind of like exhausted, um, you uh, know, yeah. where we've been going. We've been actually getting turned away at some doctors where they're You're like, kidding. you know, we don't know what's wrong with her. Um, they found out through a spinal tap that she has these proteins that she's not supposed to have, which means autoimmune issue. And um, her mouth is drooped like a stroke. Um, uh, well, so Joseph, I, I have to. I can't continue this conversation because we have Michael Averco wait, waiting in the wings. Do me a favor. I, no, no, it's okay. I'm, uh, you know, I am, uh, I am touched by your compassion for your wife, and you know, it's certain. It's funny. There are certain names that people have that you can immediately tell if someone has that name that they're really good looking. Desiree happens to be one of those names. You never meet a bad looking Desiree. So all the more important that she becomes well quickly. 
Um, this is true. Do me a favor, Joseph, and email me, and I'm going to ask the listeners if anyone has any connections that respond to what you're saying. Uh, I'll, I'll pass that contact oh, information that on to you. Frank. So the email me. The most important thing is I, I would love to get her better. 100%. That's what we all want. My email uh, is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I'm going to put you on hold so Molly can reiterate that. But for anybody that's listening... My email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I don't know anything about Desiree's situation, but um, if you do or if you know a doctor who might, I'm not vouching for any doctor or anything, but I will just pass on that doctor or that advice to Joseph once Joseph emails me. So, again, my email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I hate to hear that. Uh, so, Molly, if you would just reiterate my email to uh, Joseph there. Meantime, uh, we cannot forget about the fact that there is a war going on in Ukraine. Somebody that if we have been tapping into on all sorts of issues related to Russia is Michael Averko. He's an independent foreign policy analyst and a media critic who uh, takes a, a little bit of a different tact from what we hear in the rest of the media and somebody that has no problem calling out what he considers to be media hypocrisy on the issue of of Russia. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Pleased to be here with you again, Frank. Thank you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Now, the last time we spoke was before Russia had moved forward with this invasion of Ukraine. In our previous conversations, uh, you seem to have a much friendlier attitude towards Russia than many of the other foreign policy analysts that we hear about on radio and TV. Would you um, admit that Russia is the aggressor in this war here? Well, no more than saying the United States was the aggressor in Yugoslavia in 1999 and in Southeast Asia, or that Israel was the aggressor in Lebanon in 1982. As I mentioned to you in the past, Frank, this term aggressor is hypocritically applied. And so I prefer to be consistent. And we're not talking about a false equivalency in this and some other instances. But, I mean, there are a lot of people that are going to hear that and and point out the fact that, hey, look, you know, Russia attacked a country uh, or that never attacked it. How do you how do you say that that's not being the international aggressor? Sure, because for seven years, for eight years, actually, the Kiev regime in Ukraine has unleashed a war of aggression against the people in the rebel-held Donbass area, killing thousands, displacing thousands. And we know this is not propaganda because there have been U.N. OSCE observers who have confirmed that the majority of the uh, projectile firings have come from the regime side on the rebel side, with the rebel side having more casualties. Now, this has been going on for eight years. For the past seven years, the Kiev regime has stonewalled in implementing the UN-approved Minsk Protocol, which calls for a negotiated autonomy for Donbass. The United States government and other governments never pressured the Kiev regime with sanctions to follow through. Instead, there's been a casual attitude towards this aggression, and it is that aggression and some other factors that have led to this uh, unfortunate situation. For the record, I am never comfortable, and I indicate this in my February 27th article 
in uh, antiwar.com that was also picked up at Eurasia Review and the Strategic Culture Foundation. I am not comfortable whenever a power or any country that's maybe not a power goes into another country and the end result is going to be civilian casualties and uh, displacements. But I can walk and chew gum at the same time in being uncomfortable with that, as well as some of the responses thereafter, as well as beforehand, which certainly did not put water on this uh, fire. All right. Uh, The House of Representatives yesterday uh, passed overwhelmingly this resolution supporting Ukraine. Uh, Three Republicans ended up voting no, including Congressman uh, Thomas Massey of, uh, I believe, Massachusetts. What was your reaction to the House voting in favor of this resolution supporting Ukraine? Uh, I consider it to be a lot of hot air. Unfortunately, the politicians, when it comes to something that's related to Russia, there's very often this knee-jerk reaction that is frankly based on a lot of arrogance, ignorance, and uh, hypocrisy. And uh, a lot of people are saying, uh, Congressman Massey, for instance, I don't know if it's a lot of people, are saying that there are a lot of things in this seven-page resolution that they couldn't get behind, including an open-ended call for additional additional and immediate defensive security assistance. Uh, You get the sense that uh, if every member of Congress would have read that, that maybe you would have had more than three Republicans voting no. Yeah, well, you see, this idea that arming the Kiev regime on top of these uh, bellicose, over-the-top sanctions, uh, that it's somehow going to be a difference maker, I think is terribly misleading. If anything, it's going to lead to a, a longer period of war and, for that matter, carnage. You know, the giving weaponry to Ukraine is like somebody giving you a baseball bat to face a potential opponent who has a loaded machine gun. Well, I brought this up earlier with uh, Dr. Harlan Ullman, and he totally dismissed the criticism of those that don't want to give uh, lethal aid to the Ukrainians. Explain why. Now, just Tuesday, we gave a whole bunch more Stinger missiles and other military weaponry to the Ukrainians in their fight against Russia. The people that are responsible for that are saying, look, this is going to help keep these folks alive. Just explain again why it's a mistake for the U.S. or other NATO countries to give weaponry to the Ukrainians in this war right now. Well, you know, like I said, for example, you can give them all the weaponry, but there's no way they can win. So you're giving them this weaponry, and on top of the rhetoric, you're just encouraging them to fight on, and as they fight on, it prolongs the situation with more people dying. And let's keep in mind, too, that Dr. Harlan Ullman, I'm familiar with his views. It's no surprise that he has an affiliation with the Atlantic Council, which is you know, a pro-NATO think tank that gets a lot of um, support from uh, the military-industrial complex, and they have a vested interest in seeing these sort of militarized uh, situations that involve uh, the sale of uh, weaponry. In terms of the calls for a no-fly zone, uh, one of the things that I've been heartened by is President Biden's refusal to go forward with a no-fly zone. One of the things that makes me very nervous is that we're seeing more and more calls from members of Congress 
from pundits internationally for a no-fly zone. I want you to explain to people that disagree with you, people that think the Ukrainians are the victims here and are the victims of Russian and Putin aggression, why it would be unwise for President Biden and the United States to do as Vladimir Zelensky is asking and establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Well, very interesting, because shortly before I came on, uh, Ben Wallace, who's a pathetic joke of a defense minister for Britain, nevertheless, he had to make prudent sense to a questionnaire at his press conference in Tallinn with his Estonian counterpart. It was pointed out that in 1999, uh, NATO aggression, and I use that word uh, sarcastically, uh, NATO aggression against Yugoslavia involved a no-fly zone over territory that's not a part of uh, NATO. And Ben Wallace calmly pointed out that, you know, look, that's Yugoslavia, and I'm paraphrasing him in so many words, we can hit Yugoslavia, okay? The Serbs are miniature Russians without nukes or a strong a military, but Russia has a very good, some would say the world's best air defense uh, system, and uh, it would be uh, extremely counterproductive, put mildly, to actually enforce a no-fly zone in uh, that uh, part of the world, which is uh, Russia's uh, backyard. And in terms of your other point about Ukraine, Tucker Carlson has uh, observed what keen, objective Russia observers already know about Kiev regime-controlled Ukraine. It is not a democracy. It has suppressed those that are not anti-Russian, media and otherwise, and they have committed aggression in the Donbass. So this idea that it's a simplistic good versus evil conflict is completely bogus. Zelensky himself is a weak leader. You know, he won the presidency against somebody who had a nationalist anti-Russian platform in Petro Poroshenko. He won that election overwhelmingly in which he called for better relations with Russia and ending the war in Donbass. But then when he took office, he took an exactly opposite uh, position. And the reason why is because the nationalists, some of them neo-Nazis, no ands, ifs, or buts, they uh, have disproportionate influence, and they basically coaxed him in another direction. And we saw this, too, shortly after this Russian uh, so-called special military operation. Zelensky was quoted as saying, look, I'm willing to talk about a neutrality status. But then he quickly turned around. And again, to me and some of my people, friends in Russia, uh, we're of the impression that he can't really break away from this extremist dominating element around him. Would it be a mistake for people listening or to you right now to call you pro-Russia? I'm pro-Russian and pro-American. I'm pro-Russian because I think it's in the best interests of the United States. And I believe that, unfortunately, because of uh, influential anti-Russian lobby in this country, uh, the advocacy of myself and others, we consistently get uh, the kibosh put on us. I mean, I greatly appreciate your having a more broad-based perspective where you can have someone on like Wesley Clark and Harlan Ullman, but then have an extended give and take with yours truly. And, and by the way, 
that desire to showcase multiple points of view or provide greater context in my own commentary, that's label that's been uh, that's had a whole bunch of people refer to me as a Russian stooge, as a spokesman for the Kremlin. One listener is taken to calling me Moscow Morano. So you see the the reward that media personalities get for trying to have a more nuanced discussion about this subject is essentially an attempt at. At, at cancellation, and uh, I would venture to say I've noticed that I get I get a lot fewer retweets these days. I do think that big tech. I have no evidence of this, but I do think big tech is uh, trying to kind of suppress some of the social media messaging promoting this content that we're doing on the radio, which is one of the reasons that I'm sincerely, and I don't want to sound patronizing, but I'm sincerely grateful to John Katsimatidis for giving me a platform for four hours a day without any restrictions that I have to take one narrative point of view or, or another. So I appreciate you recognizing that. Yes, and let me also say this, too. It relates to the Ukrainian community as well. You know, in the think tanks in the United States and the media, you get the impression that every Ukrainian is uh, very uh, disliking of Russia. But I can tell you right now, I run into people from Ukraine, and they're not, you know, ethnic Russians per se. Some of them are ethnic Ukrainians. Some of them are mixed. Some of them are of Jewish background. You know, Ukraine, like the other former Soviet republics, a lot of them anyway, is a kind of a melting pot. And you know what? They tell me, you know, Mike, I agree with you 100%, but I don't get involved because I have my own professional career. And I see the sort of flack that people like yourself, i.e. me, go through. So they would rather not deal with it. And they also tell me that at Ukrainian expat gatherings on the weekend, the pro-Banderite group, um, you know, they have a way of being provocative, of being loud. It almost seems like they're looking to cause trouble where, you know, they try to start these arguments. And a lot of people who don't agree with them just basically uh, shut up because they know that it could get loud and at times uh, violent. There have been a lot of folks, including Dr. Ullman, that uh, believe that Russia is responsible for war crimes. Just this week, the International Criminal Court at The Hague says they're going to be investigating whether or not war crimes have been committed. President Biden hasn't gone that that far. He is not willing to commit to saying Russia's committed war crimes. You seem in your commentary to be saying that Russia has actually demonstrated a fair amount of restraint. Is that right? Uh, not only have I have said that, but uh, Douglas McGregor on your show, and I also believe elsewhere, has uh, said that now. You know, it's very difficult to fight a clean war in civilian areas, and that's why I am not comfortable about this situation, because no matter how hard you try, there are going to be civilian casualties. And this is what I consider to be war porn, Frank, and audience. And I choose that term uh, pointedly, war porn. I didn't coin it. But we're clearly seeing war porn here. We're seeing true human interest stories, okay, with the likes of Clarissa Ward on CNN and Richard Engel on MSNBC. 
But we didn't see that when it came to uh, the Donbass rebel inhabitants. And I think the reason why is, uh, frankly, a kind of bigotry, because this is the other side of Ukraine that's closer to Russia, farther away from Central and Western Europe. And the people who are suffering in that instance, they happen to have a pro-Russian outlook. And as far as this war crime stuff, uh, we're talking about another attempt at a kangaroo court, similar to what happened with uh, former Yugoslavia. I mean, look, Trump was at his best when he had this give and take with Bill O'Reilly, where O'Reilly flippantly said, Putin is a killer. Trump was at his best. Right. He said there there are a lot of killers. You think we're so innocent? Exactly. And you know what? Trump is right, because, again, and I am a patriot, okay? Um, in 1979 or 80, when um, Carter reintroduced the draft, I was young at the time, but, you know, and I didn't agree with it. But you know what? I signed up. I didn't, you know, do anything, you know, counter to that. Uh, I come from a family of war veterans, so nobody is going to second-guess my patriotism and love for this country. I'm in this country because... I love it. And uh, my opposition to the neocons and neolibs should not be confused with being anti-American. They have no business hijacking the idea of what it is to be an American. Final question, Michael, and then I'll, I'll look forward to our next conversation unless I'm canceled between now and then. Is uh, there the prevailing narrative uh, in the media and including a lot of commentators that um, have a more nuanced view of the situation, has been that the Ukrainians have been doing much better than expected in fighting off the Russians. From your perspective, is that true? Are the Ukrainians doing better than expected? Uh, they might be, but then again, keep in mind, too, there's a lot of propaganda, like the guy who supposedly shot down five, six Russian planes, and DW and some others look into it, and it basically was video from a computer game to prove that. I mean, I saw something really bad. The BBC said the host in a propagandistic way. If the Russians thought they would greet, be greeted as liberators, watch this scene. They show a civilian SUV. It didn't have military colors or military marks. It was spray painted in white with Z. Z is what you typically see on what Russian transport vehicles in Ukraine. It, comp- it really it looked like a hoax. And you see a bunch of people running towards it in a hostile way, some of them with Ukrainian flags. There was nothing in front or back of that vehicle. I'm supposed to believe that was real footage. And then afterwards, that BBC host has the audacity to host Risto Grozev of Bellingcap, which is a British government-funded propaganda outfit that only goes after purported disinformation that goes against uh, UK foreign policy interests. You know, there are people who sincerely believe in uh, the Kiev regime cause, and they are fighting, and not all of them are Nazis, I acknowledge it. But, you know, we don't know a lot of what's going on. And, uh, you know, I, like many people, I want to take a calm approach. I don't want to jump to conclusions. One of the reasons why Russia has not advanced as quickly as some might think is because, as Colonel McGregor and some others have pointed out, 
they do have a deliberate, calculated, probing sort of role. So this is something ongoing, and so I reserve judgment somewhat. Well, all right, Michael, question. always interesting to chat with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you, Frank. Take care. All right, 15 seconds of fame in just a minute will allow you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are on hold, we'll try and squeeze in a couple of extra seconds for you, but... Uh, the rest of you, you'll have an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. I want to get to a few people that were holding uh, before we uh, do 15 seconds of fame who had more to add. Uh, Steve uh, is in the Catskills. Hello, Steve. How you doing, Frank? I talked to you a couple times. I love your show. Thanks. Um, listen, that guy who called yesterday on the $1,000, you know, question you got to help that guy out man that that man is sincere he is in trouble and uh he, he needs a, he needs a hand and, well I, I want to i want to i'm not really no, no, sure no, no, what to do uh, let me just finish real quick um you guys on the radio and, and and in the media you guys can help people like him and and that's what you all need to do you need to you need to put the ego easing god out you need to put that to the side and help people like this man. This is who we need to help. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say, Frank. I love your show, dude. Thank, thank you, Steve. Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. Hey, how you doing, Steve? I was listening to you you're bleeding for the politicians there. I mean, they mainly most of these politicians today they end up getting to be uh, whatever they are. They become millionaires. Me personally, I think they should have a parade for the women and husbands and whatever that wait for their husbands and, and wives to come home from war, to come home from service. You know, they, they're a service. And I always say, don't forget, vote for a vet. So if it has a uh, vet, Well right, said, Mike. Well said. Well said. I think that's one of the reasons, and thanks for the call, that's one of the reasons we're seeing such poor foreign policy decisions being made by Congress is there are so few veterans serving in elective office. So I do agree with that. Without further ado, time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Mike is in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, for her birthday, um, why don't you give Molly the rest of the day off? With pay, of course. Uh, after the podcast is uploaded. David in the Bronx. Oh, okay. oh you want a date? 
I'm good. Neil on Staten Island. You know, Frank, I would take that feces guy, hold him down, and I would stuff his mouth with so much feces for a half an hour until he choked to death. Another Neil on Staten Island. Hello. Hey, it's Russell. Hey. Frank. Frank. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. It's Russell. And now that we got that settled, Jeff in Suffolk County. Hey, Frank, uh, now that basement Biden is cutting off the Russian oil, I guess the orange man was right. We will be paying $8 for gasoline. And finally, John in the truck. Hey, Frank, great show, man. You, you're really growing on me. Hey, listen, where did they release that mutt, too? That, and they hit the girl with the feces. Where did they release him, too? And that slams the lid on things for today. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.